is still the same about our safety. Nothing has changed. There's a lot of echo. I don't know why. Uh, please check on that. There's an echo in the speakers here. Honorable members, I wish to announce that the vacancy which occurred in the National Assembly owing to the passing away of Ms. M. M. Tlow, has been filled by the nomination of Mr. X. N. Msimango with effect from the 7th March, 2022. The member made a subscribe and subscribed the oath in the speaker's office. May I welcome the honorable member as he stands. Honorable members, hey, this thing is disturbing, man. It's disturbing, I don't know. Could be because the house is empty, Chepers. Because of what, Mr. Shakima? The house is empty. There's <laughs> not many members yet. No, something must be done. I think they will be able to reduce whatever. As I'm speaking, they are listening. I know they will help us. Okay? Yeah, I can see them. They will do something. That corner. Uh, on the first item on today's order paper is questions addressed to the ministers in cluster two social services. There are four supplementary questions on each question. The parties have given an indication of which question their members wish to pose a supplementary question. Adequate notice was given to parties for this purpose. This was done to facilitate participation of members who are connecting to the sitting through virtual platform. The members who will pose supplementary questions will be recognized by the presiding officer. In allocating opportunities for supplementary questions, the principle of fairness, among others, has been applied. If a member who is supposed to ask a supplementary question through the virtual platform is unable to do so due to technological difficulties, the party whip or duty will be uh, on duty will be allowed to ask questions on behalf of their member. 
When all the supplementary questions have been answered by the executive, we will proceed to the next question on the question paper. The first question has been asked. Okay. The first question has been asked uh, to the by Honorable C.V. King to the Minister of Higher Education, Science and Innovation. Uh, I was told that the minister will personally be here in the chamber. Is that so? I don't see the minister. No, unfortunately, Chair, my apologies. I was unable to, to okay. attend as I had originally intended. Understood, Minister. Uh, I will allow you now, Minister, to answer to question number 90, asked to you by the Honorable King. The Honorable, the Minister. Uh, thank you very much, Honorable uh, House Chair and Honorable Members. And thanks to Honorable King uh, for her question. My response to this is that the National Treasury allocated an additional amount of 7.775 billion rands for the 2022-2023 financial year. A further amount of 1.5 billion rand will be reprioritized from my Department of Higher Education and Training 2022-2023 budget. This allocation is in line with the projected 9.3 billion shortfall for NESFAS in the 2022-2023 financial year. In addition, the National Treasury has allocated additional amounts in the medium-term budget framework to anticipate the anticipated shortfall in subsequent years. However, uh, House Chair and Honorable Members, this is done whilst at the same time the Department is working with a ministerial task team that I appointed in 2021, which is working at developing a, a, a full comprehensive student financing model or student financial aid system that hopefully will bring certainty in terms of the, the, the different funding needs of students with the hope that by the middle of the year, one would have actually been able to finalize such a model and the necessary policy frameworks in order to move forward. But the long and short of it is that all NESFAS qualifying students this year who have been admitted to accredited programs at universities and colleges will be funded for the 2022 academic year. Thank you very much, Honorable House Chair. Thank you, the Honorable Minister, the Honorable King. Thank you, Minister. In 2021, NEVSA funded 5,454,000 students, um, of which 9,098 students were unfunded and 21,972 students' appeals were rejected or closed. For 2024-22, more than 700 applications were received. Clearly, Minister, 
This actually highlights that the 10 billion rand shortfall is not really a clear projection. So, Minister, the Treasurer-General Treasurer actually said that 32.6 billion additional funds will be made available. How will this 32.6 billion rand be utilized in totality to cover the additional students who have applied for NEFSA funding? The Honorable the Minister. Thank you very much, Honorable House Chair. I must say, the, the figures that Honorable King has, I don't recognize them at all. Because what I know is that in the 2021-2022 financial year, or the 2021 academic year to be specific, more than 700,000 students were funded by NESFAS. And this year, they just going to about hit 800,000. And NESFAS has got processes of determining who is funded who is not funded. We've got very clear criteria, including mechanisms for those who wish to appeal who have actually not been funded. Now, what we are committing, as I'm saying, is that all students who have been admitted to accredited programs in both universities as well as colleges for this current financial year will actually be funded, who are NESFAS qualifying, and that is what I mean. So I don't know the figure of 54,000 where it comes from, because that's too little. That's not what NESFAS funds. NESFAS funds much, much bigger numbers. Indeed, you know, there are some challenges in relation to the need to have enough funding of the system to be able to support the growing number of funded students. I think that's the issue that going forward, which we are looking into, as well as the fact that the ministerial task team is also looking at a model that will then enable us to identify where the gaps are and so on. For now, unfortunately, I don't recognize the numbers that Honorable King is talking about. At the next available moment, even at the portfolio committee, I would be more than happy that we pursue this question of hers. Thank you very much, Honorable Chair. Thank you. Speaker, may I raise a point of order? The minister would know that NEFSA, he was in the meeting when NEFSA presented to us in December that 542,193 students were funded. So I would like to know where he 700,000 comes from. Honorable member, let's not forget that this is an oral reply question. So if you have a debate on the issue, you, you have to do it the right way. Thank you. The rules allows you to do that. Uh, Honorable Kwankwa. House Chair, is it possible to sort out this echo before we continue? Because we can't hear members when they ask questions. I, I also had a problem. Now we run the risk I... of repeating what they've already covered in but, our follow-ups. Okay, let's just be patient. Let's continue with it. We can't stop, Baba. Uh, Please, they are working on it, and I trust that they will come up with something. Yes. Um, as we proceed, we call on the second follow-up question from the Honorable Matazi. Thank you very much, House Chairperson. 
I think the minister, you'll agree with me that NSFAS of today is way better than NSFAS of yesterday. Those will continue having challenges, but these are teething challenges in a system that is progressing very well. Honorable Minister, in light of the fact, what sustainable funding model can equalize the supply-demand deficit in the system to meet the financial needs of NSFAS eligible students without negatively impacting other departmental programs. Thank you very much, House Chair. Thank you. The Honorable the Minister. Uh, thank you very much uh, to, to Honorable Matazi for asking a very pertinent question, actually, as to how uh, do we find an equitable model Firstly, my answer to that is, is what I've pointed out, that the, the work of the ministerial task team that I have appointed to actually respond to the, to help me respond to the challenge that has been posed to cabinet for me, will be able to come up with a funding model that is based on what needs to be funded by how much so that we actually are able to find all NESFAS qualifying students. Now, the most important thing also is that this ministerial task team is also going to be looking at issues of uh, student debt and as well as looking at other aspects of, stu of student funding that, that are needed. But Honorable Matlats, we are, we are hitting at the right issue. Because also this team must also say, what are the implications of increasing student funding for the mainstream budget of the department? Because as things stand now, it's not healthy, the fact that we are going to be taking 1.5 billion rands from other programs of the department in order to support student funding. Because that's self-defeating at the end of the day. We will actually be funding more students into a system that is less capable of effectively responding to their needs. But the test team report, I am expecting that it will address all that such that government and national treasury are very clear on what needs to be done in order to strike the right balance. So I agree with you with this concern. I hope that the team then will be able to give us a better answer so that government will be able to respond comprehensively rather than on a year-by-year -year basis as we are doing at this moment. Thank you very much, Honorable House Chair. Thank, thank you. Uh, the Honorable Kwankwa. Minister. Regularly, or rather on a daily basis, we get complaints from students about portal errors and dis delayed disbursements of allowances by the centralized NFSAS administration system. Has your department done anything to avoid or to do done anything about these portal failures to make sure that students are not unnecessarily denied funding or that their funding is not delayed, the disbursement is not delayed unnecessary? Thank you. The Honourable the Minister. Uh, thank you very much, Honourable Nguangwa. Uh, let me say that uh, I do appreciate the concerns that you are raising, because I myself, my office is dealing with such on a daily basis. The issue is often like this, that whilst there may be glitches with the NESFAS system, which we monitor very closely, by the way, as the department, NESFAS itself does monitor the system such that whenever there is a, a problem, 
In my Facebook, for instance, students raise it all the time. We are able to right away raise the issue with NESFAS uh, to say, are there problems? And then they are able to actually address, address them. But the other challenge that we have is sometimes the problem of communication between NESFAS and institutions. Because sometimes in some institutions take time to confirm to NESFAS the list of students who have actually been admitted so that the NESFAS will be able to say, out of your list, these are the ones who, who were really informed, qualify for NESFAS, and therefore we are actually going to pay for them. That is why what I am now preoccupied with is the development is for NESFAS firstly to acquire a more advanced ICT system to be able to process issues. But at the same time, we are looking at the capacity of especially TVET colleges, because that's where the bigger problem is, to also have the necessary ICT system to be able to interact with NESFAS on time. So the problem sometimes comes from institutions rather than from NESFAS itself, despite the glitches that sometimes are there. But I am working towards upgrading that these institutions all upgrade their systems so that in future we do not have these these kinds of problems that we have had. But so far, we've been able to deal with the problems, including the appeals that are there. And I would like to encourage members like Honorable Mbwanko that sometimes if you don't get joy, please, as an honorable member, get in touch with me as the minister uh, right away without any delay. Thank you very much, uh, Honorable House Chair. Thank you. Um, uh, thank you, House Chair. It's um, Member Paulson that will be taking the question on behalf of the Honourable Tambo. Proceed. Minister, in November last year, you indicated that NISFAS has funded over 750,000 students in 2021. The number of students from poor households who are going to need assistance to further these studies is surely going to increase over the coming years. NISFAS, with its perennial problems, you heard of them now, is not the answer to these problems. Why are you resisting developing a comprehensive plan for universal free higher education in South Africa to ensure that not a single student is left out? Thank you very much. Thank you. The Honourable the Minister. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Honourable uh, House Chairperson and to Honourable uh, Paulson. Firstly, I would say in response to this question, I'm glad, glad Honourable Paulson, that we have come out with a correct number of around 750,000 students who have been founded. Unlike Honourable King, who, who spoke about 54,000 initially, which is why I was questioning her numbers. And then also then later says 540,000. No, not uh, you, uh, Minister. They are, they are just making noise in the house. Proceed. I'm sorry. Okay. Yes. I was saying then also what Honorable King got wrong is that she's only counting university students. If you then include Tibet College students, that's why the numbers go up to 750,000 that were funded. Now, I want then to say in the light of that to Honorable Paulson that we are developing a comprehensive plan for student funding, but government policy is clear 
We have no universal funding of higher education in this country. That's not government policy. Government policy is funding students from the poor and working class backgrounds who come from families who are earning not more than 350,000 rands per annum. Those are the, are, the, are the priorities for government. But in addition, I've asked this task team to look at what other system, which possibly will be a loan system, can then be found for those who come from families who are earning more than 350,000, but at the same time not rich enough or wealthy enough to be able to pay for their students. But where a family has got two university students and it's earning up to 600,000 rands, that family can make an appeal to NESFAS to be actually be able to pay for them. So that is the system that now we are looking at. How do we tighten and make sure that the glitches in NESFAS are ironed out? And then how do we deal with what we call the missing middle? This position of the EFF really, uh, Honorable Paul, Thank you. I'm sorry to say this. It's Honorable. a very reactionary position. Thank you very much. Okay. I wanted to remind uh, the Honorable Minister about the two minutes response. And, uh, what, and so others to follow. Thank you. What would I say? Mama. Honorable Paulson, do you want to say something? Yes, uh, Honorable Alice. The, the, Is that the, a point of order? The minister threw something back at me and I feel we have to respond. That is our position, that education will be free. Oh, okay. No, now we are not debating here. I'm sorry. Let's proceed. Okay. Uh, we're now on question number 121. House Chair, <laughs> just before the minister answers, I know that he was born before technology, but can he not sit too close to the screen? We end up only seeing his mouth. Hi, man. Who comes here? Near man, men say. You can simply talk to the chief whip. The chief whip will inform. Please. Uh, we now move to question 121. Hey, this thing is not going away. What's wrong, ICT? It's not going away, and we, we're really struggling, to be honest. When members speak, we can't hear them very clearly. I don't know what went wrong because we have been doing so well. Okay. Huh? Is it only from me? Are you fine as members there? Yeah, so we... Okay. Let's give them another opportunity to try and sort this out. Uh, question 121 is asked by the Honorable Dumbo uh, to the Minister of Higher Education, Science and, uh, in, and Innovation. The Honorable Dr. Nsimande. Uh, thank you very much, uh, uh, Honorable Chair. Thanks also to Honorable Nguanko for helping me about how I look. Uh, thanks to Honorable Tambo for the question. I want to respond by saying NESFAS can only provide information about the number of students that it has approved for provisional funding. The final funding decision is linked to the formal process, as I have explained earlier, whereby a student registered for a funding qualification at a particular institution. 
The final number of funded students, therefore, depends on the integration of registration data with NESPAS funding database, which can only take place once all registration processes have been completed. But in the meantime, I can be able to say that NESPAS is able to report that of the 645,000 applications received for university study, 635,331 applicants have received provisional funding decisions. Approximately 144,000 of these provisional funding decisions indicate that the applicant's request for funding has been declined. And approximately 130,000 of applicants do have the option to appeal. Approximately 97,000 of these provisional funding decisions indicate that the student's request for funding has been declined. So that is the picture at the moment. And lastly, NESPAS will receive the first tranche of its 2022-2023 allocation from the department on the 1st of April, 2022. And then we will disperse funds for students where institutions have submitted complete and compliant registration data to NESFAS. Thank you very much, Honorable House Chair. Thank you. Is the Honorable Tambo there, or are you proceeding, Honorable uh, Paulson? Yes, I am, Honorable Speaker, the Chairperson. Proceed. Follow-up question. As recent as at the end of February, many students at the University of Cape Town, Durban University of Technology, and the University of the Free State, to name a few, were left in limbo after the application for NISFAS was rejected and the appeal, appeals process was delayed. Can you guarantee today that all these qualifying students have been given confirmation of funding from NISFAS and are registered at universities? Thank you. The Honorable the Minister. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Honorable Chair, and thanks for that follow-up question from Honorable Paulson. I want to say that virtually all these problems that have been raised have been addressed by institutions. And I'm very pleased to say that the interaction between institutions and their SRCs to address many of these problems have generally gone very, very well. That is why the sector largely is very stable, and in fact, the academic program has started and, and progressed. The reports that we are getting is that all these outstanding problems are being addressed. I can't, of course, stand here and say up to the last, but my commitment is that working together with the institutions, we must ensure that no problem is left unattended, including working together with NESFAS, such that all students are attended to. Obviously, uh, Honorable Paulson, there will be those who do not qualify, who have criteria as to who qualifies, who doesn't qualify. So those who do not qualify do not get NESFAS, but they also have got a chance to appeal within a particular period. The, the turnaround of the appeals also have really improved because we commit that we deal with appeals within a cycle of not longer than 14 days, so that there isn't much delay and students are negatively affected. Thank you very much, Honorable House Chairperson. Thank you. Uh, Memana Niso. 
Uh, okay, thank you, I'll share. Uh, Honorable Minister, I heard on your response, you have covered an issue of appeal. However, one wants you to take the House in confidence on what interventions are in place to enhance the NESFA system to improve its application, approval, and as well, appeal process. I thank you. Thank you. The Honorable the Minister. Uh, thank you very much, Honorable Manani. So that's a very important question that you are raising. Oh, Honorable like Minister, just a minute. Honorable members, as, as said yesterday, this house is too small. So let's try to minimize on our loudness, please. I'm doing what you asked me to do. My mouth is straight with the mic, but I still can feel the echo. Anyway, Minister, you have your full uh, two minutes to, 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 to respond to Honorable Mananiso. I'm sorry for disturbing you. Thank you very much, Honorable House Chair. I was saying that the, the question that is asked by Honorable Mananiso, it's a very important question as to what interventions are being made to make sure that the NESFA system is responsive. Firstly, the, the, one of the biggest interventions that have been made from the, towards the end of last year is that now students are able to get a response, most of them, instantly as they apply. Unlike before, they would wait for weeks, sometimes for a month or two before they get a response if they qualify. Now they get the response, especially that category of students who are SASA recipients. They are able to get the response as they actually launch their applications. The others who do not get their responses like SASA at the time they apply, NESFAS is able to come back to them within 48 hours, which is a very, very huge improvement to what actually has been happening before. As I have said, what I am now focused on is to assist NESFAS that we get the necessary funding for NESFAS to be able to acquire a better ICT system that will be able to even improve more and be able to interact much more effectively with institutions because part of the delays are caused by the institutions not sending responses, indications to NESFAS on time to indicate which students have actually been ad admitted and to which accredited programs. That is the second major intervention that we are actually going to be making in order to make sure that NESFAS indeed does respond on time. Thank you very much, uh, Honorable House Chair. Thank you. Ms. King? Uh, Minister, I'm glad that you're saying that you are intervening to ensure that the networking and the ICT system is taken care of. But Minister, today's students, as we are speaking here, still do not know what the outcome of their appeals are because of the My NFSA system, which collapsed um, during the course of the application process. So Minister, please take us into your confidence and tell us exactly on which which date will most of the appeal backlogs be addressed? Honorable the Minister. 
Uh, Honorable House Chair, thank you very much for that follow-up question. I would like, though, to correct Honorable King. Don't say students do not know whether they are getting their money or not. As I'm talking to you now, I don't have the exact number, but NESPAS has assured me that overwhelmingly, the students have actually been informed. In fact, the, the number that I quoted earlier of, of the 645,000 applications, 635,000 applicants have received provisional funding decisions. They know that they are actually going to be funded. That question I have already addressed. So you can't say students as if it's everybody. Where there are students who have had problems with my NESFAS portal, NESFAS at all times is the interaction with them. I have what I call my own war room in my own office, working together with the department that is actually monitoring the situation. Sometimes we even respond or check on behalf of those who touch my office, though I do not encourage that because I do not have that capacity in my office. But we are monitoring NESFAS all the time. You will be able to get an appropriate information. You are free to ask this in the portfolio committee when we've actually concluded the registration processes. And also, it's important that we make sure that also students have got the right numbers, they do not change. Thank you very much, Honorable Chair. Thank you, Honorable Minister. The last follow-up question will come from the Honorable Stoller. Thank you, Honorable Chairperson. Honorable Minister, Last, last year, the IFP received numerous complaints of payment from, of payment from NSFAS of students that have stopped without any information, especially in the Mangosuri University of Technology. What steps have been taken to rectify this issue in order to reconcile the student account and what were some of these reasons for the cease in payment for approval applicants? Thank you. The Honorable the Minister. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Honorable Chair, uh, to, to, to the follow-up by Honorable Stone. Job. Jangobankazi, on what is actually happening and is going on at MUT, and also what this year seems to be improved interaction between the SRC as well as uh, institutional management. Honorable Primrose. 
and all other members in front of your gadgets, please ensure that all your gadgets are muted. If your name appears on the screen and you repeat, I will ask that you be excused. The next question is from the Honorable Masuta, which is question number 122, asked to the Honorable Minister of Human Settlement. The Honorable, the Minister. Thank you very much, um, House Chair. Um, we have acknowledged the challenges and recognized the challenges caused by lack of coordinated planning. Hence, the department planned and developed a declared 136 priority human settlements and housing development areas. The intention is to ensure the integration of planning, funding, and development within priority development areas. This allows as well for the crowd in of private sector funding to support and supplement government funding to achieve a set of uniform, equitable, and integrated development objectives and outcome. The PHSHDAs, as we are calling them, are incorporated into the various districts and metropolitan municipalities where we are talking about one plans of the DDM. Within this financial year that is going to start, we will be announcing a set of changes that are going to assist us to be able to implement this plan. We are aware of the unfinished projects or what we call blotted projects that are forming part of our work for the 2022-2023 financial year so that we start unblocking them and responding to what has been previously the challenge of no coordinated planning and some of the weaknesses that existed because of capacity building. Thank you very much, Chair. Thank you, Honorable Minister. The, I'm advised that the question as asked by the Honorable Masuta, the Honorable Tseke will take charge of the follow-up question. Oh, Tseke. Okay, they wrote wrongly. They said Tseke, and that is Tseke. Okay. Thank you, Honorable Tseke. You may proceed. Tseke ki monna. Uh, this is the follow-up question, Chairperson. Uh, what are the main barriers for integrated planning, budgeting, and implementation? And how the department uh, working with the private developers for inclusive economic development are going to act moving forward? Thank you, Chair. The Honorable the Minister. Thank you very much, House Chair. Major issue that would allow us, or the issue that will allow us to crowd in private sector investment is to identify, when we identify these priority areas, to support them with bulk infrastructure. Major part, because when you look at what private developers want to do, they are inhibited because of this area of work where it's costly for them to do, where it's services that relates to uh, municipalities. So what we have done in terms of our HSDG, you would have heard when the Minister um, of Finance announced in terms of the changes in the budget, but also with the 
appropriation division of revenue bill that has been tabled. But compared to previously, we are now in terms of non-metro uh, uh, municipalities, will be able to move in terms of directly from 2% of uh, bulk infrastructure development to 5%, but the provinces have a leeway to increasing it to 30%. And this will be done as they submit their plans so that we can ensure integrated coordination, working together to ensure that what we are developing in terms of the infrastructure supports economic growth. Thank you very much, Chair. Thank you. Uh, as we proceed, we now invite the Honorable Muruti Mishra. Chair, the Honorable Thring, as I understand it, it will be taking the follow-up uh, with your permission. Allowed? Proceed, me, Honorable Thring. Thank you. Thank you, Chair. Thank you. Thank you, Chair. Uh, Honourable Minister, the challenges of bulk infrastructure as well as the lack of integration across all three spheres of government affects most departments. The ACDP has in this regard raised these challenges with DTIC. Now, Minister, the ACDP has also long championed the principle of sweat equity when building human settlements, as this principle allows unskilled members of the community to develop an artisan skill in the process of assisting one's neighbor to build a house before building one's own house. Sweat equity is Ubuntu in practice. Will the minister employ this principle of sweat equity as a model for building human settlements? If yes, what percentage of developments will be allocated to sweat equity, sweat equity and by when? If no, why not? Thank you. Honorable Minister. Thank you very much, um, House Chair. Honorable Fring, let's start here. Bulk infrastructure can be done by inexperienced people because it's, it's work that is done by engineers. So this is the work, what we talk about when we talk about bulk infrastructure is the bringing of connection, for example, and let me just simplify it. When you want to connect sewer from a, a plant to houses into a community, when you want to connect water from dams into communities, when you want to connect electricity from the grid into, so you can't take inexperienced people to do that. So that's why it's done by engineers, it's done by professionals. So that's the first thing. I think you are confusing things. Where we utilize artisans, for example, if bulk has been put and then you're connecting to the houses, there you can utilize artisans under supervision. And building of houses, yes, we utilize as well artisans. So the work is currently there. As part of our work in most of the areas, we do have learners that are trained. Some of them are coming through EPWP, you will see in provinces where the MECs as well would have young people graduating as we conclude to the project. So that work is already there. I'm not so sure about this sweat uh, program that you're talking about, but it could be just the utilization of different ways of what is already existing in the programs that we are running. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, the Honorable Heron. Uh, thank you, Chairperson. Chairperson, the, um, the question, as I um, understand it, is about the alignment or the misalignment between the different spheres of government spending and planning infrastructure um, in um, where, where human settlement developments are taking place. And obviously the alignment and planning on, of socioeconomic infrastructure across all three spheres of government is critical if we're going to address 
deprivation and achieve meaningful outcomes of local economic growth and, and inclusion. And in 2011, the national government introduced the Built Environment Performance Plan, or the BEP, for our metros. And it was a requirement um, of the metros to prepare this integrated plan across the three spheres of government and including the SOEs in order to qualify for the, the Urban Settlements Development Grant, the USDG grant. Um, the purpose was to align the infrastructure and other investments in the metro by the three spheres of government so that you don't have these housing developments taking place where there are no other services. So perhaps the minister can tell us, does the BEP or the Built Environment Performance Plan still play a role in the allocation of USDG and other funding so that we don't have these incomplete and poorly Honorable planned? Honorable Heron, I gave you extra time thinking that maybe you are not familiar with the rules. You have one minute to do that as it comes from one, Rule 142, and you haven't asked your question yet. I, I asked my question, I'll ask it again. Indeed, after I gave you extra time. Minister, please proceed. Thank you, Chair. Um, indeed, Honorable Heron, I agree with you. That's why part of what we are doing now, previously you'd have the Metro submitting business plans to say based on the allocation of the USDG. Therefore, this is what we are going to do for a particular year. What has been the weakness is that the USDG grants allocation together with the business plans would be done between the national department and the metros directly. And when we engaged with the provinces, they raised this as a concern because it allowed for misalignment. We have agreed that as we do the new business plans, in the new financial year that is coming, we will ensure that we involve the provinces. We ensure that in the planning, we sit together between ourselves as national, the provinces and local municipality, which is the metros, in planning for the infrastructure utilization of the USDG so that there is alignment together with the um, informal settlement grant that will be allocated to the municipalities. So that work has started already. Thank you very much, Honorable Man. Thank you. The Honorable Sheikima. Thank you, House Chairperson. I think we need you as a referee. When Bafana Bafana is playing, we need to score a goal. You give us extra time. Uh, House Chairperson and uh, Minister, my understanding is just that the Human Settlement Development Grant was created to accelerate the process of housing development particularly for those people in the middle income group who did not qualify for bonds and things through the financial institutions, but through the Human Settlement Development Bank and private investment, we might be able to accelerate this. But what is very, very clear for the last couple of years that clearly, and what you're saying is, I know you're addressing it, that we lack the capacity to be able to provide these service sites, to be able to accelerate this process. Now, Minister, would you consider also speaking to the Minister of Higher Education so that we could include in their curriculum those skills that you need at this local level to be able to accelerate that process? Thank you, uh, Minister. You had a few seconds extra. Never ask again. The Honorable, the Minister. Um, thank you, House Chair. Let me just again clarify, Honorable Sheikh Ima, 
Um, the HSDG, which is Human Settlement Development Grant, does not cater for social housing. So social housing program, it's what we call FLISP, or in short, from the 1st of April, we'll be calling it so that everybody can understand, help me buy a house. Help me buy a house FLISP that is currently run under SHRA together with NHFC is the one that is meant to close the middle, what we call the missing middle, where people who are not qualifying for BNG, RDP, RDPs are funded under HSDG. HSDGs is for our top structures in terms of our BNG, and also, as I explained, the 2% in terms of our um, infrastructure, and also allocation, some allocation for a ratification program. So what he's referring to is what we are regarding under social uh, housing program, where we are responding to the missing middle in terms of the application. And that program is running very effectively. Now we are reviewing it with the 1st of April. We are going to make a full media briefing, honorable member, and we'll share with you uh, the details of how we intend to continue with this program. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, we now proceed to question number 76, asked by the Honorable Hendricks to the Minister of Social Development. The Honorable, the Minister, I think she ran to the bathroom thinking that you would, she was here all along. Let me take the next question. We will come back to the 176. I will now ask the Honorable Minister of Sports, Arts and Culture to respond to question 123 as asked by the Honorable Adams. Thank you very much, uh, House Chair, and uh, thanks to, to the question uh, asked. Uh, by the member here. My department has already included uh, the fight against GPVF uh, amongst its flagship programs. To that end, and particularly at this point in, histories, in, in, in the country's history, around the subject, specific initiatives have been put in place <clears throat> as part of uh, our program. The example here would be uh, the program, uh, which is a campaign led by young women uh, tackling this matter of GBVF from the prison, from the prison of, of young women. Hulikane program, which is uh, the conversation between uh, men uh, or fathers uh, and sons uh, looking at this matter, and all of them are linked to what we call Silapa program, which is a program about the wellness, it's a wellness intervention program, about mental illness, substance abuse, uh, issues of, of uh, legal issues, financial issues, and so on. The victim opted uh, to exercise her legal rights and subjected the matter to criminal investigations by the South African Police Services. At least the Portfolio Committee and ourselves were informed uh, by uh, SASCOC, uh, by uh, Swimming South Africa through SASCOC. However, the reported incidences against Swimming uh, South Africa related to allegations of abuse by a coach and staff member 
gave rise to the urgent need for an evaluation of what processes were in place to deal with the full spectrum of safeguarding in sport without interfering with continuing legal processes. To that end, discussions on the subject have taken place both uh, SASCOC and the portfolio, both within SASCOC and the Portfolio Committee of Sport Arts and Culture. Amongst the practical measures, uh, Chair, which uh, we, we, uh, we are looking in this regard, one is the development and adoption of safeguarding policy by SASCOC that will be cascaded down to all its affiliates and national federations. Two, in uh, the process which has commenced from the department looking at the possibility of making the provision of such safeguarding policy amongst the department's funding criteria. Three, the prioritization of schools by the department through the initiation of measures whereby proper vetting of personnel dealing with children in sports events is instituted. Four, the establishment of a subcommittee under the Safety and Security Commission to deal with the safeguarding of school children uh, events. Five, the appointment of safeguarding officers at events hosted by the various provincial departments, which would collaborate with SAPS, convening of safeguarding workshops as part of the school's sport events. The last point, uh, Chair, is uh, the full uh, cooperation and participation by my department uh, with the envisage workshop on the safeguarding in sport that the Portfolio Committee on Sport Arts and Culture, led by Honorable Beauty Lulani, is, has resolved uh, to convene. Thank you very much. Thank you. <clears throat> the Honorable uh, Adams. Thank you, Chairperson. Honorable Minister, how does the department monitor and address sexual abuse minors and adults in the sector? I thank you. The Honorable the Minister. As I've responded, uh, Chair, thank you very much. I proceed and call upon the Honorable Van Dijk. Thank you, Chairperson. Uh, Minister, it's just not true that SASCOC is serious about safeguarding when their own reporting email address for abuse victims and complaints on their website does not work and emails bounce back, as I previously reported in a portfolio committee meeting. Minister, what have you done in this regard to hold SASCOC accountable for their lack of action to protect victims? The Honourable the Minister. Well, I think uh, the Honourable Member uh, will help her uh, not just to throw a statement without substantiation. Yeah. We have, in a comprehensive way, explained what is happening within the department, what the department is doing, what SASCOC is doing, what Swimming South Africa is doing, and also what the victim has done, which we support, actually, that uh, <coughs> The, taking the matter to uh, the law enforcement agency, which at face value uh, comes across as a criminal matter, is what needs to be supported. And I think that uh, the, the Honourable Member quite clearly, she prepared her speech before I responded. Uh, so I understand that. Thank you. Thank you. 
Honorable Malingosi. Thank you. Thank you, honorable members. Thank you, Chairperson. Uh, Minister, the, the junior sports seem to be a fertile ground for sex pests who want to prey on our children. From tennis, and especially prayer tent coach tent rapist Bob Hewitt to water polo, which was rocked by sexual abuse scandals from two coaches, Colin Rex at Pugtown Boys High and Fiona Viotti at Bishop Diocesan College. These cases are prevalent. Why have you not established a unit uh, and when are you going to do that? Uh, that will especially deal with prevention of cases like this and ensuring speedy prosecution of these perpetrators. Thank you. Thank you. The Honorable the Minister. Uh, Chair, and thanks, Honorable Member. I thought the member, because he's so close to me, and uh, whatever I was saying, he, he heard it. The subject you are raising is a very serious subject. And as a result, we took steps to evaluate whatever policies are there. Not only for swimming, it came about through swimming, but it's a problem which we feel that the, all the sporting courts, all the national federations under SASCOC has to deal with, and hence the steps we have put in here. If perhaps these steps are inadequate in your view, we'd be very much happy uh, to get the more views, but it is a matter we are dealing with because there is no way, and we are correct to say that the, our sport cannot be allowed, or sporting codes cannot be allowed to be used as the ground for sex pests, especially to our children, because these are, are the children, these are the children we are talking about. But this, these are the steps, as I said, uh, six steps here, which we've put forth, and we believe that uh, they are going to help uh, to alleviate this problem because it has to be eradicated. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, <clears throat> the last question will come from the Honorable Mishwe, which I think is Mr. Thring. Mr. Thring again. Uh, okay, Mr. Thring. <laughs> Uh, thank you. Thank you, Honorable House Chair. Um, Minister, I think the integration of sport into the academic field uh, of many students is, is much appreciated. Uh, within the rural areas in particular, however, uh, we find that many of the sports facilities are absent. What is the Minister doing to ensure that within our rural areas, our students in these rural areas are incorporated into uh, the sports fields. Thank you. The Honourable the Minister. Well, thank you very much, uh, <coughs> Honourable Chair and Honourable Member. I think that uh, the member is uh, asking a very important question, a uh, question of the facilities. I want to say, Chair, that with the uh, finite budgetary resources we have uh, as the department uh, through transfers to provinces uh, and uh, district municipalities. 
we are uh, we have uh, ring fenced the municipal infrastructure grant to ensure that we contribute in the building of facilities in our communities because that's a big problem. Having said that, though, uh, I must remind the honourable member and members that uh, this is a constitutional matter. The provision of uh, sporting facilities is the responsibility of local government and, and not the national government or the National Department of Sport, Arts and Culture. We are doing all we can uh, because uh, every year we ensure that in our own way, within our own budget, we create these facilities and we open them almost uh, on a weekly basis. We'll continue to do that, but uh, we, we also uh, urge the sphere of government, which is responsible for facilities, to ensure that these facilities are actually uh, established. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you very much. As I hand over to the Honorable Danchi, I will now call on the Honorable Minister of Social Development. We understood, uh, Honorable Minister, for your few seconds of being out. Uh, please uh, respond to question 76 as asked by the Honorable Hendricks. The Honorable the Minister. Um, thank you very much, Slalo. Uh, so, um, umbuzo from the Honorable Member and indicates that the Department of Social Development in its portfolio has a number of prevention programs targeting youth at risk of gang involvement and addressing underlying socioeconomic factors that push young people to join gangs in the first place. And I think that's what we really need to deal with. What pushes young people to join gangsterism? Um, adding that gangsterism and gang violence is a cross-cutting issue that no single department or entity can solve alone. To this end, we have adopted a whole of society approach by working with a number of key partners, such as basic education, the South African police services, and justice among others to implement social behavioral change programs, focusing on prevention, and prevention is more important, early intervention, statutory reintegration, and aftercare services. These programs include You Only Live Once, which we call it YOLO, targeting 15 to 24 year olds, uh, Chomi, focusing on 10 to 14 year olds aimed at developing skills, empowering children to make informed choices to reduce HIV infections such as up and substance abuse. Boys championing change, men championing change, seeks to involve boys and men in advocacy and social mobilization campaigns. Risiha, a community-based prevention and early intervention targeting children and youth at risk. Kimoja, I'm fine without drugs a national substance abuse prevention program implemented in all nine provinces. Specialized community-based pro probation services, which includes diversion, pre-trial and pre-sentence psychosocial support to children and youth in conflict, psychosocial support as early uh, intervention programs to create resilience amongst children. 
These interventions seek to involve and empower young people and their families as active social actors in their own development rather than passive recipients of services with specific reference to questions. And in addition to the aforementioned interventions, we're working jointly with civil society and community-based organizations to implement, to implement um, the follow program in Cape Flats Rhythm of life, playing through the forest wake up call, stop to start school and community based life skills, parenting workshops and the holiday program. These interventions are targeting children and youth at age 10 to 18 and honorable chairperson. There are four interventions seek to complement ongoing national efforts, notably the anti -gang, gang strategy led by the Minister of Police in a number of areas. Recently, and I call upon other honorable members when they have requests with the Department of Social Development to do so. We recently went to with honorable Mari Sukes of the ACDP in Lavender Hills and surrounding communities to address similar challenges raised by honorable Hendricks. We are also working with Father Patrick Norton of the Salesian Institute Youth Project, which is specifically targeting youth at risk from the Cape Flats. Going forward, our plan is to scale up collaborative interventions in this nature that empower young people and communities in which they live to deal effectively with gangsterism and associated um, challenges. I therefore urge all members to join hands with government and communities across the country to wage an unrelenting fight against gangsterism and illicit drugs. But we must also go deeper into why are we here and why are the drug lords in Maine always uh, roaming the streets or sending children out into the streets. I thank you. Thank you very much, Honorable Minister. The Honorable Hendricks. Uh, thank you, Honorable uh, House Chair. Honorable House Chair, the response of the Minister gives us uh, hope. And uh, we are concerned about the Cape Flats. And I want to know if the Minister uh, will extend the same courtesy uh, to Al Jamal, like she did to the ACDP, uh, to visit an outfit that has some plans to combat uh, gangsterism on the Cape Flats with an eye on the socioeconomic response. Thank you. Thank you very much, Honorable Minister. It will only be with utmost uh, commitment and uh, pleasure to respond to Honorable Hendricks. As I said, I responded, um, I respond actually to all members of parliament who would like us to, to come through as the Department of Social Development. In fact, I was having a conversation earlier on before the start of this sitting um, with the EFF uh, member, Umam Kaula, who was talking to me about some of the progress in the areas where she comes from. And I'm still indicating that any member who'd like us to come through, we will come through. Thank you. Thank you, Honorable Minister. Uh, the second question goes to the Honorable Bilangul. Nakensa Musamwashtulu, Unikwangari, Wakulandelerisa, Nibutisa, Shibutiso Eka. Muchabiseki Mananazul. Honorable Minister, 
I heard you answering the question that has been posed by Honorable Hendricks. But my follow-up question is, Minister, will you expand your interventions beyond addressing the challenges in the Cape Flats? Please confirm. Thank you very much. Thank you, Honorable Member. Honorable Minister. Thank you very much, uh, Honorable Dilangulu. Yes, as I indicated, we are a department at national level, and therefore we expand and, and go as far as is possible for us. We crisscross the entire country. Um, you would also be aware, as we report to the portfolio committee of our activities in the Northern Cape, in the Eastern Cape, in Guazulu Natal, and across the country. We actually don't even choose on the basis of politics where we go to. We go and address the issues as they are being brought to our, 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 our department by all honorable members. And all honorable members, as I said earlier on, should you, particularly those members who know of hotspots, because we'd like to target those hotspots. But thank you also, honorable member, for asking the question, because when we indicate that the issue of drug and drug trafficking and drug abuse is something that has to be dealt with by all of us in community and society in general, because these people, from the drug lords to the users, they live within our communities, and therefore we must take responsibility and ask our communities also to take responsibility so that we can be able to address this once and for all. Thank you. Thank you, Honorable Minister. The Honorable P.S. Masango. Thank you, House Chair. Honorable Minister, we have seen the benefits of collaborative efforts between the City of Cape Town's LEAP service officers, SAPS, and other community and government forums. Crime stats in hotspots on the Cape Flats have reduced at, at some places by double digits, with Nyanga no longer the capital murder of South Africa. Given these successes in dealing with the social ills through these efforts, is the Honorable Minister going to consider a collaborative partnership with the City of Cape Town, the Western Cape Government, SAPS, and other departments tasked with dealing with gangsterism? Thank you. Thank you, Honorable Member. Honorable Minister. Thank you very much, Honorable Masango, and respectfully, um, I think you're very much aware that as a Minister of Social Development, one of the things I don't do, I don't get into any place irrespective of which government is in office without writing the necessary letters informing the relevant structures that I am coming into town. You can also check that with uh, your MEC Minister, of social development and any other, even when I come to the Western Cape, I do send communication because I truly believe that a collaboration and, and, and work that we need to do sometimes, we have to realize that the challenges that are on the ground sometimes and many a times are just beyond our politicking. 
Those are issues that we need to deal with. I am on record, you can check that out. Every time I go anywhere, including in the Western Cape, I do write the necessary letter requesting that the, 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 the provincial authorities join me when I go to, in fact, even the two, the one place that where Honorable Sakers invited me, Thankfully, the province and the local structures were there because I invited them to come along because I believe that some of these issues need us to put politics aside and deal with the real challenges that are facing our people, the real needs of our people. I thank you. Thank you, Honorable Minister. Uh, the Honorable Briet, the last thank question. You. Thank you, House Chair. House Chair, has the effectiveness of this department's program been evaluated? And is there actual outcomes that can be measured to physically indicate that less youth are involved with gangsterism? And could the minister share these statistics and outcomes with us? Um, if there is no tangible, measurable outcome, this program is fruitless and the youth will remain vulnerable to gangsterism. Thank you. Thank you, Honourable Member. Honourable Minister. Thank you very much, Chairperson. There isn't any work of this government of the African National Congress that we don't evaluate because we believe in order for us to have effective um, impact, we need to go back and evaluate and check whether there's an impact or not, number one. Number two, we also have what we call monitoring and evaluation at national level, at provincial level, whose sole responsibility and task is to check the impact of the programs of departments, including the impact of my own work as a minister and all other ministers. We sign performance agreements with the president because we have to be accountable and we have to show what is it that we have done. However, I do want to say, Chairperson, that we can have the most beautiful, the best programs that we have in place if we cannot connect to the local structures, we cannot connect to the NPOs and NGOs that also are doing the work. We'll never be able to get anywhere. And lastly, I think that uh, as South Africans collectively, we need to appreciate the fact that there are things that we, we have to hold hands in doing. Because sometimes if we spread fear amongst our people and keep on saying government is not doing this, government is not doing that, we need to be able to be united in efforts, especially when it gets to programs that are promoting young people and positivity amongst young people. Thank you. Thank you, Honorable Minister. Honorable members, we will go to question 124. We are done with 123. We'll go to 124 asked by the Honorable Murwatsetha to the Minister of Basic Education. Honorable Minister. No, thank you very much, Chair, and thank you um, to Minister Murase. There's a program which the President did announce to Minsona, whereby Department of Public Works nationally under Minister Dilil is going to assist us and the provinces uh -huh. with our infrastructure. Honorable Minister, as 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 suppose we are Oh, uh, yeah, you you are not. Oh, uh, 
I'm just trying to check my volume. Oh, oh, okay. Okay, go okay. ahead, Honorable Minister. Okay, I'm very sorry about that, Chair. Let me start all over again. I'm saying, Chair, we have major problems with our infrastructure in education. And as a result, we have adopted a number of strategies to help us deal with the problem. One, we work with the Department of Public Works and then there's a member who's disturbing us. Okay. Honorable Minister. Minister. Okay. You, you can Minister, go ahead, please. We're working with her to assist us through the presidential infrastructure team to deal with the problems. Then the other approach we have is the ongoing one where public works in provinces work with the departments of education to, to provide infrastructure. And now because of the crisis we have about teaching spaces, your natural disasters, Again, as National Department, we are having now a third program whereby we'll work with our provinces to repair schools which are storm damaged, damaged by the rain, but also where we have overcrowding uh, because of either high enrollments or poor infrastructure in schools. So we do use different methods and different approaches to deal with our uh, infrastructure challenges, Chair. Thank you very much. Uh, Honorable Minister, the Honorable Adjuns will take the first opportunity. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Chairperson, and thank you very much also to the Minister. Uh, Minister, how is the department working with various stakeholders to address the problem of infrastructure delays due to disruptions of projects on the basis of local empowerment demands? Thank you, Chair. Thank you, Honorable Member. Honorable Minister. No, Chair, we are experiencing such challenges, but what we've decided as the department, working with other government departments, is to work with the Department of, of Police to help us where we have unreasonable demands. But if demands are legitimate, where people feel that outside contractors are brought into their space when they have skills, we do not, uh, try to really uh, negotiate with our service providers. Basically, as a department, we don't really have the capacity to, to, to deliver. We work with your implementing agencies, your DBSA, your UCHA, and all other implementing agents. But the approach is that we first really try to make peace with local people, but if it's unreasonable and sometimes it's extortion or it's criminal, that's when we bring the Department of Police. It's not been serious of late. It used to be extremely serious in the past, in the past to an extent that we had to abandon other projects because we are unable to find each other with the, same, uh, with the protesters who were demanding jobs which they didn't qualify for. Thank you, Thank you Honorable Minister. The Honourable Notata. Thanks, Chair. Minister, crumbling infrastructure and overcrowding in classrooms are chronic challenges that the education sector continues to face, as you've mentioned, while there's inadequate funding for provinces and reduction in the EIG. The special purpose vehicle seems to be an admission of failure of the ACD and SAFE programs, which were established with the aim of eliminating backlogs in school infrastructure, such as mud asbestos, and pit toilets. What will this new special purpose vehicle offer 
that will be different from the safe and CD programs in, address, in addressing infrastructure backlogs and will implementing agents that have continuously failed to um, deliver on time and some building schools in wetlands and some building uh, toilets that are not working be involved in this process? And is there an accountability mechanism that we can work towards and timeline for us to look at in terms of the special uh, program that will deal with infrastructure and schools? Thanks, Chair. Thank you, Honorable Member. Honorable Minister. Chair, well, the first to admit that our infrastructure, there are major challenges. Since we returned back to school, there's a big problem with teaching spaces. With this incessant rains, classes are falling apart uh, with storm damages. So we are the first to admit that we have a problem. That's why the presidency had agreed with us that we will need another vehicle. Not that we're not removing this one. Another vehicle to add to our capacity to do things differently. But your ACD programs, as I say, it's a special project which was given to national to deal with much infrastructure. Your SAFE was, was meant to deal with pillar trims. So those are special projects that are occasional that Department of Basic Education gets involved in. But generally, as a Department of Basic Education, we don't, it's not our competency to be building schools, but because we realize that it is a problem, we've decided to work with our provinces and support them. And the member is right that quite a number of problems have, have, have really created problems. You're in, implementing agents, and as the previous member, uh, my member at once, your infrastructure mafias which disrupt work on the ground, and all those are being attended to because it's not just one problem that has uh, 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 that is confronting us. It's quite a number of things. So I'm very confident that these special agents, it is going to help in adding capacity. It's not on, going to be the only one. It's going to add capacity to our work because we're admitting there are problems in terms of our school infrastructure. Thank you, Chair. Thank you, Honorable Minister. The Honorable Mashabella. Thank you very much, uh, Chairperson. Uh, Minister, early last year, your department announced that it was suspending about 2,000 infrastructure projects across the country uh, because there was no money. So, Chairperson, I'll be taking the question for Honorable Mashabella. Uh, oh, okay. Now, yeah, sorry about that. Now, Minister, in the Eastern Cape, it was announced that uh, it had stopped all kinds of infrastructure projects in the province for the same reason that I stated uh, above. This is despite the fact that there are still mud schools and schools with no water and sanitation in that province. So, Minister, what are the, the sustainable short and long-term plans that you have as a minister to resolve the problem of school mm -hmm. infrastructure in the Eastern Cape in particular? Thank you, Chairperson. Thank you. Thank you, Honourable Member. No, thank uh, you. Honourable Minister. Okay. No, thank you, Chair, and thank you, Member, for the question. Indeed, with a budget cut in order to make, to create space for money to pay for, uh, to deal with the COVID-19, we did experience budget uh, uh, cuts, and as a result, had to, to, to revise our plan and only deal with emergency. And the problem is not only in the Eastern Cape. The problem is national. There are problems in Zimbabwe, there are problems in KZ, and there are problems even in housing, for instance, with overcrowding. So what we've decided is I say there are three approaches. That's why we had approached Treasury and also the National uh, 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 Department of Public Works, that we need 
help and extra capacity and extra resources, which the Minister of Finance is working with us. But on our side, we also said, in terms of speeding up, it doesn't help to be looking for contractors going out on tender. Provinces like Houteng have already piloted your self-built projects. Whether, where if it's not big infrastructure, it's additional classes, the staff room, we use local community people to build infrastructure in schools as a way also of fast-tracking our delivery, but also ensuring that the resources and the monies remain in communities which are being serviced. So as I said, there are three approaches, and those three approaches are meant to exactly address what she, uh, the member is raising, but also said treasury was also working with us to make sure that we are assisted in terms of dealing with the current ongoing challenges with infrastructure in, in schools. Thank you, Honorable Minister. Sonisha Nkwankwa. Mamu Minister, ubagenda kumsha ngale English yamka NSFAS abazundi vayetok. My problem is that Bateta Ngendoba is Golo Zabo, Wanigwa Njigrandi, about 100,000 or more. I can't remember the specific amount. Could be eradication in math schools, but only a few classrooms would be built, one or two or three. And immediately after that, has been, those classrooms have been built, they will then not be regarded as a math school, even though the entire, the rest of the, the structure is either made up of temporary structures, such as preferred, preferred buildings, or just math structures in general. We visited a few of those schools where the principals were complaining about that. How can you address that to ensure that Singapore City Abanamad schools is a zizo? Thank you, Honorable Nkwanka. I tried to accommodate you Gemon by mixing. Uh, that's the best. The Honorable Minister Kuholoroy Tsweri. No Kalebuantati. Kita Kupa Mweta Pilimo Ampe Yinani Hanjo one drag segitabusiti. Ah why you go, Kim Sebetwa province. Impantwesar Dumelan Gaiwan. The province Iete asidi number three, number two. Ubani asidi ya pili. Ine isebe tswakali nane lirifumani di provinsi. Rafua chateli nane leo. Dole, jeka habulele nabulele niti. We do discover that there are indeed extra schools that were not on the original list, which keep on really being brought forward by committees and provinces. And that's why, again, Treasury, we're working on asidi three, asidi two. Because a one was informed by the numbers that were given, and as he correctly says, in some areas the school is not on the list, it has not been given to us as a math school, but we encounter it. So indeed, with the new programs, with public works, that's where we're going to also go back to remediate where there are existing problems, as the member correctly states. Thank you, Honorable Minister. Uh, that, uh, that ends the series.
the Honorable Van der Valt, through the Minister of Basic Education. Honorable okay. Minister. No, thank you very much, uh, Member Van der Valt, and also thank you for the question. Chair, as the Department of Basic Education, we have adopted what we call the National Reading Sector Plan to improve reading for meaning amongst 10-year-olds. And the, natural, the National Reading Sector Plan is premised on 10 strengths. The first strength is to strengthen teacher capacity. The second one is strengthening the capacity of the sector itself to be able to deal with the matters. The second one is direct support to learners where we have ready coaching and training around reading. But we also are working with committees to make sure that there's parental support, there's also community support. The fifth strand is provisioning of, of, of reading books because that's the other big problem that we have. The sixth one, so, as, so that we're able to monitor, is to track the learner performance in the areas to conduct research, but to also get partners. We have reading champions to make sure that we have ready support beyond ourselves. We work with partners like the NECT, which is helping us to work with different uh, uh, actor, uh, uh, actors and people who are interested in the sector. There's also advocacy, there's reading across the curriculum, and we are monitoring the program. So those are the three, those are the 10 main strengths that we have. And the member will know that we also have what we call the early graded reading assessment, where we assess the current capacity of our kids we also have what we call the primary school reading program improvement plan, which again, that's where we think it has to start. We have the foundation phase reading framework also, because we have phase that we have your foundation phase, then we have your intermediate phase. And then we also have what we call annual teaching plans that guide teachers and have also provided study guides. So in short, uh, member, we've tried different methods advised by experts, by professionals, by researchers on how to deal with these ongoing challenges. But as the member also knows, we attend or we participate in all assessments, both regionally and internationally, to benchmark ourselves against the best. But we also have our own assessment programs to check if indeed we're making program progress around these t 10 uh, pillars that we have adopted for the reading strategy. Thank you, Chair, and thanks for the question. Thank you, Honorable Minister. The Honorable Fanavant. Thank you, Voorzitter. Minister, I have no doubt that you understand and want to improve the issue around mother tongue education. But in listening to all of, you, of what you are doing already, I would like to ask you whether you have investigated if not, whether you will. And will you agree that it is also very important that we start looking at the reopening of our uh, teacher training colleges, specifically for primary school teachers, and with an extra special focus on mother tongue language in the foundation phase. It is also true that we have to read with meaning, but we also need teachers that can actually understand these languages. And we would like to know then also to add to mother tongue, whether you would consider in your department looking at printing the works books in dual language, page next to page, like English in Isikosa or Afrikaans in Isindebele, whatever, because we believe 
We want to add to your uh, plans to make sure we are successful. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you, Honorable Member, Honorable Minister. Not that there is no doubt that mother tongue instruction is the best instruction for cognitive development. There's no debate about it. But the, let me dispose of the teacher training colleges. I used to, I mean, I, I think 20 years back, I thought closing teacher training colleges was a mistake. With hindsight, which is the best science, I think it was a correct decision. The quality of teachers that we're getting from universities, it's immeasurable. So, and remember, you know, your education system can be better than your teachers. Your teachers are the anchor of your education system. And to give them the best is to get the best. So I now am a convert to say, we should not reopen teacher training colleges. We should continue working with universities and get the kind of products that we're currently getting from the young, new graduates that come from colleges. In terms of mother tongue, I'm fully in agreement with the member. And the member, I think, will be aware that the Eastern Cape is really leading, uh, when they call themselves uh, the place of legions. On this one, they really are legions. For a solid 12 years, they've piloted with mother tongue instructions and did all the things that the member is saying. They piloted Zulu and Sutu and tested this year the learners that started off standard four in learning in Tulsa when they're in grade 11, compare them with those who were only taught in English. And they find that those that were taught in Tulsa and Sutu far exceeds. So we agreed with the member that mother tongue is good for cognitive development, but because of our history, it's taking lots of investment, lots of research, and we are at the point where we think as a sector, learning from Eastern Cape, we're going to be able to spread the mother tongue. Thank so you. I'm in full agreement. And the advice, as I say, highly welcome. Thank you, Honorable Minister. The Honorable Adwans. Uh, thank you, Chairperson. And thank you, Minister, for the response. Uh, Minister, what factors contribute to learners struggling to read with meaning by the age of 10. And how will the ECD migration contribute in improving learning and development outcomes of children? Thank you, Chair. Thank you, Honorable Member. One of the major problems, especially for African kids, where the majority of kids in the learner, is for them to be accept, expected to learn in a foreign language from the workbook. So it's a major problem for cognitive development if kids are not allowed to or are not enabled to learn in their mother tongue. So it's a major problem, especially for African kids. And that's why, as I say, we change policies. And I think the solution is mother tongue instruction and working and continue to build on what the Eastern Cape has started, and the other provinces are already beginning to, 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 to pilot. For me, that's one of the major problems. But secondly, the other thing is also access to reading materials, that your affluent families, kids have access to, to reading materials, they read quite early, and that's why your ECD, early childhood development, if we strengthen that net, it will help us to deal, for instance, with remediation quite early, so that if kids have got visual problems, they have speech problems, we're able to remediate before they come to school. And so that any other thing that really will hamper or will stall their reading, will, or, or even their learning, will be dealt with in the ECD program. So by the time they come to school, they are school ready, 
but the sector also understands where the shortcomings, where the crises are, and where the difficulties are. So we think it's going to give us a solid, solid foundation for children's development. Thank you very much, Honorable Minister. The Honorable Tembegwayo. Thank you, Chairperson. Uh, Honorable Siwisa, uh, asking a question on behalf of Honorable Dr. Tembegwayo. Uh, Minister, with reference to the familiarity as a principle of simultaneous language learning outside of the classroom, which basic tools of reading do you have to avoid a submersion approach of teaching taking place in the classroom? Thank you, Chair. Thank you, Honorable Member. Honorable Minister. Chair, I hope I understood the member correctly. The bottom line that I really think as a country we have to adopt is mother tongue instruction. But indeed, you will find that, if, for instance, in Gauteng, we won't be able to have a pure class in Sutu or in Kausa the way they're able to do it in, in the Eastern Cape. So you're supposed to use any language that the kids know. And the biggest problem, because as the member says, in classes, teachers use different languages. So if kids don't understand, they speak in the language that they understand. But when you go to assessment, they are assessed purely in that language which they didn't understand for learning. So which means they are no longer testing their cognitive development or understanding, you're now testing their language abilities, which is a problem. It is a problem when, as I say, African-speaking kids will start from grade one. They don't necessarily need to know English and they, they're, they're able to succeed in life even if they didn't study in their mother tongue. So we're saying the same dispensation must be done and we have started the process. So the next step is to assess them in the language in which they were taught. So they're able to assess performance, not language uh, uh, proficiency. Thank you very much, Chair. Thank you, Honorable Minister. Babu Chob. Honorable Minister, recently, the work observed International Mother Language Day. The theme of 2022 International Mother Language Day was using technology for multilingual learning, challenges and opportunities. Multilingual education based on mother language, mother language is a key component of inclusion in education. And during the COVID-19 school closure, many schools around the world and country employed technology based solution as distance learning tools. How will this department ensure that learning tools, programs and contact exist for all and are, are, and are able to re reflect language diversity? Thank you, Honorable Member. Honorable Minister. No, thank you very much, Chair. And indeed, we celebrated that International Day in the Eastern Cape, as I say, as a province leading in this aspect, and with PANSLAB and all other agencies that are working in education. And we agree with the theme that for our development to be fast-tracked, to be strengthened, and to be deepened, we need to deepen our, our mother tongue instructions in schools and use technologies, like using your radios for teaching, so that you could teach maths on a Sutu medium or a Zulu station in Sizulu, in Sizulu, because we are teaching concepts and not teaching them the language. So it's to use all the different medias, but it also means you have to develop the material as a member from 
appropriate language, the appropriate terminology, so that if you want to say something is bacteria, or bacteria. So bacteria bacteria But we then we need to really use technology to make sure that we can streamline strengthen with the advantage of technology as they're using in the Eastern Cup. Eastern Cape is also to be very scientific, but this is a major program we're embarking on. So you need to scientifically and systematically on your bomb. The next question 0109 from the Honorable Mashabella to the Minister of Basic Education. Honorable Minister. No, thank you very much, Chair. Chair. If you go to our website and go and look at the education realities, we have these figures. In 2011, we registered 1,177,089 learners for grade one. In 20, we can't give you the 2012 statistics for grade 12 because we only released statistics in September when we have verified information from grade, from first term, second term, and we're only able to give you clean information data in, uh, around September. So I'll then share the 2011 data for grade 11, not 12, as the member had asked. So for grade 11 in 2021, we had 954,069 learners. And the question was, what is the cost for four? For? Where are the others? Indeed, as a country up to grade nine, we have almost 99% school attendance. In grade 10, we see a huge dive, and we were quite fortunate that State South Africa conducted research for us to say, what are the challenges? So some are challenges that we're aware of, but some of the challenges that I would say surprised me. One of the challenges that came is your cognitive challenges of your FET curriculum, that when learners go to grade 10, they're expected to specialize. There's only one narrow curriculum. That's why we now have a three-stream curriculum which caters for children's gifts, interests, and abilities. That's the first thing that we've done. We've also picked up that because of that age, there are teenagers and there are social difficulties in our communities. You experience unwanted pregnancies, teenage juvenile uh, 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 delinquency, hence you see lots of kids trapped in drugs and others getting to prison. It's one of the problems that we have. And that's why we're also strengthening our social uh, 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 support program to learners. What surprised me was also that some learners live out of poverty. It surprised me not so much that I'm not aware that there's poverty, but I had thought as government we had done some work in terms of no fee school, school nutrition, scholar transport, free books, that it will help us to protect quite a number of learners. But still South Africa tells us that when they become conscious of themselves, they really sometimes feel, feel too embarrassed to come to school with broken shoes, torn shirts, and as a result, they leave school, and that's why we're working with social development. So we have identified the different reasons why we see this time after grade nine and are trying to deal with it in different ways, including curriculum support and strengthening our, uh, our, our teaching at your, at your senior phase before they go to the FET phase where they drop in big numbers, but also start them young. And that's why we're investing so much in ECD to set out very solid, strong foundations for them to be able to continue their education. Thank you very much, Chair. Thank you, Honorable Minister. Honorable Mashabella. 
Honorable Tweza Chair, taking a question on behalf of Honorable Mashabela. Minister, over the past decade, we have observed consistent higher rates of of school dropouts in this country. It was reported last year that the lockdown had contributed to the highest rate of, of dropouts in history with over 500 learners who were meant to be in school, not in school. This is a crisis, Minister. What factors have contributed to these abnormally high rates of dropouts and what intervention have you, Minister, made to ensure that all those who must be in school do attend school? Thank you very much. Thank you, Honorable Member. Honorable Minister. I don't want to add statistics, but I can say as a department, I am not sure if there's anybody who's able to collect statistics better than us. Because we take attendance registers every year. We are the one who register learners. So we are the first to know if children this year have not come and what has happened. So any statistics outside the education realities, I treat it with doubt because it's a sample of whatever methodology people use to get samples. So I don't want to argue, argue statistics. I'm saying in education realities, if you go to our system, every year in September, we issue statistics of how many learners we registered, how many learners have been in the system until the third, the, the fourth term, and that's it. But in terms of where the member is right and our fear and our anxiety, it's around the impacts of COVID-19 on learner return to school. And we'll only see the impact from statistics. We have to see how many learners, because up to last year, parents, some parents were not very comfortable. We saw a huge growth of your homeschooling, and now learners are coming back to the public sector in numbers. In my previous reply, Chester, I don't take time, I've just explained what is it that we do as a sector to deal with dropout rates, with repetition rates. And if we have time, we'll explain, for instance, what other interventions we have. We have, as I say, your support program. So if it's curriculum difficulties that forces them to go out, it's fine. We even had a progression policy so that if learners keep on failing grade 11, we don't allow them to fail because that's what discourages them from attending school. We give them extra classes as progress learners. So there are different things that we are doing. We're not arguing. We're equally concerned. And for us, in any case, it will be a real indictment if after 11 years of investing these children, we lose them to the streets. And we're doing all we can to make sure that we don't use that investment. Thank you, Honorable Minister. The Honorable Adwans. Uh, thank you very much, Chairperson, and thank you, Minister. Uh, what mechanism is the department implementing to track dropouts and how will the Bella Bill amendments respond to this problem in a sustainable manner as highlighted in the president's input to the bill, which will soon be uh, undergoing public hearings? Thank you, Minister. Thank, Thank you, you Honourable Member. The Minister. Chair, as I say, the question of dropout rates is an old problem. It's not a new problem. But what we can say as a country, we are very encouraged that we are increasing our retention rates. That's why even this year, you can, even last year, we had the highest number of learners writing metric. So which means our efforts to, 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 to really deal with dropout rates, it's paying dividends. And the member will know that we've done quite a number of things. 
And I think as much as we should be concerned as South Africans, but we should not be alarmist because as a country, we are one of the few countries in the third world which is able to retain as many learners as we are retaining the schooling system, which is not a consolation. We, should all, we shouldn't lose any one of them. So we are putting in place different measures, including schools, schools to follow up. They send people to check where learners are. Have they moved houses? Are they unwell? And they still alive because they're also human beings. Uh, you think that they've dropped out Gandhi, they, they really, the, 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 the maker has called them. So schools do follow up. Even ourselves are, are doing all things through the curriculum, through support, just in terms of what we've identified. Even our curriculum changes are meant to address some of the problems that we identify. The three stream cur- curriculum is supposed to have your. Yo, 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 I can see the chairs raising their head. So the Dresden curriculum chair is supposed to really help kids because the dropout is at grade 10, 11, and 12. In terms of curriculum, uh, career choices, support that they get, but also strengthen your social support so that if it's depression, kids have lost parents through COVID, there's necessary, there's the adequate uh, uh, safety net to protect them against other things that might have confronted them socially, which are not necessarily educational. Thank you, Chair. Thank you very much, Honorable Minister. You're right on time. Honorable Notata. (laughs) Thanks, Chair. Minister, according to your own department's uh, full basket of reporting, for the 2021 metric results, the Free State was the province that achieved the highest pass rate. However, if you consider the number of learners enrolled in grade 10 in 2019, to the same cohort to actually pass metric in 2021, the dropout rate was one of the highest in the country. This reporting may be encouraged by the league table reporting, which encourages provinces to drop low-performing candidates to improve their own pass rates. Despite that, despite the fact that some learners might have failed or some have gone to TV at colleges, this dropout rate remains very high with 3.3 million youth not in education, employment, or skills training. And the department recently reported that there's over 160,000 learners that did not return this year. The reality is that these learners don't have skills to participate in the economy and might end up living a lifetime of poverty. Minister, will you consider the DA's proposal that the president acknowledged in his sonar reply as a workable suggestion for the department to work with DSD, DHEAD, and provincial education departments to develop a learner tracking and tracing and retention mechanism for learners who actually drop out? Thank you. Thank you, Honorable Member, Honorable Minister. I noted. Utatito's that is That's sometimes my problem. But let me leave that one game. Some into a politi into interiors tatela we own. What I am saying, it's not possible to really, it's 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 much. We're still dealing with registration. Anybody's going to come with statistics and say Nantilena drop out. As I'm saying, it's simple. You'll hear from us that noted that more September, six hundred and twenty-one against the Mabuye, and that Bangai Piamagabui, Babi Abani. Where are the others who might have gone also to homeschool and all sorts of problems? For now, let's not play with figures that, as I say, will just give us unnecessary problems. We are the best. Co- best place to give you the correct figures. We have no reason to hide while collecting them because it's in our interest to know where our learners are. In terms of different methods, we're not only guided correctly so by partners in parliament because indeed it's very important for us to get what other parties are saying, but we're also guided by our own structures as the ruling party 
but also by researchers, academics, and even your stats on Africa. So if you have any fresh idea, which I know Tinglabija Pagun, his descent will consider it. But any other thing that will protect our children is in our interest. We're not that irresponsible not to appreciate the dangers of, of lender dropout and repetition rates. And that's why we're putting whatever measures in place to protect our children against the same things that we're saying. So we just as responsible, that not that if more uh, around the lives of our children. Thank you very much, uh, Chair. Thank you, Honorable Minister. The Honorable Imam. Thank you, House Chairperson. Minister, I think you must agree with me, and I think you've alluded to some of the problems that we have in the school, which is resulting in learners staying away from school, and then very importantly, the number of them that drop out from school, and then further to that is the fact that a great percentage of them that go to Tivert colleges from basic education to higher also drop out there as well. Now the question is, and I think you've just given us the answer a short while ago, what can we do differently, Minister? So I want to say to you, Minister, can we introduce things in school that will encourage, entice these learners to stay in school? And I'll give you one good example. When we went to school, we had inter-class, inter-house, inter-school, inter-zone, inter-province, sporting activities, music, and whatever it is. This encouraged learners to stay in school. Very importantly, many of these vulnerable children, Minister, are coming from dysfunctional homes. Now, will you consider talking to our Minister of Sports, Arts and Culture, together with Minister of Social Development, to introduce Thank this, you. yes, Thank so you, that Mr. we Kimmer. could have a vigorous program to encourage them and Mr. keep Kimmer. them in school. Thank you, Minister. Thank you very much. Honorable Minister. Uh, remember, uh, Imam, so I, 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 I will not disagree with you that sports has to happen, music has to happen, talent set. These are the things we're doing. When I said we have strengthened our social care and support program, it looks for questions of sports. We have a very vibrant sports program in our schools. Music, go to A-State Sports, it even produces professionals. Music in our schools, but we're also having your care and support on things like violence, like bullying, unwanted pregnancies. So we've tried to work with the sector to identify where the threats are and develop a program about all those threats. When we were saying we even want to have comprehensive sexuality education, it was basically to deal also with some of the problems that force children to drop out of schools, which is your unwanted and planned pregnancies. We have programs where we deal with youth criminality, where some of these kids end up in prisons. So all the number of things that we're raising, as I say, that's why we've gone out of our way to make sure that we strengthen our care and, uh, and support program, which deals with all those activities. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Honorable Minister. Dadelzi, 125. Uh, am I right? Hmm? It's, yes, it's on higher education, okay. uh, higher education, science, and innovation. The Honorable Litsi. Yeah? 
Oh, okay, and I was some pause. Honorable oh. Chair, I thought I'd yeah, answer him first. Okay. <laughs> okay, sorry about that. Uh, yes. Uh, Thank you, uh, Honorable Minister. On, Honorable House Chair, uh, thank you very much. And thanks to Honorable Lexia uh, for, the, for the question. My answer is that currently Higher Health, which is our implementing agency, assisting us with all matters related to health and wellness in our post-school institutions, has finalized guidelines that institution will follow in determining various matters around vaccination. I'm currently studying these guidelines before I can release them for implementation by all of our institutions. However, in the process of the finalization of these guidelines and in relation to vaccine mandates and management of the academic year through higher health, I have urged all our institutions to ensure that the policies and procedures they put in place have been widely consulted on campus. Because whilst higher health has come with guidelines, but these have come a little bit later when institutions had already started making consultations. I have said, continue to consult, but make sure that you try and reach the widest possible consultations and also guided by the constitution, by the way, which says that no right is absolute. Those who are pushing for their right not to vaccinate, they do have that right, but also those who have vaccinated, they have a right also to feel protected so that you don't have an imbalance. At the moment, though, I'm very pleased to say that there are a number of education awareness drives that are, are, are being conducted by higher health. My department working with higher health will work very closely with universities management and colleges management and SRC to ensure that we encourage staff and students to get vaccinated because vaccination is safe and saves lives. There's also a ministerial task team that is engaging all our stakeholders, which is chaired by our Deputy Minister, Honorable Putimana Mela, which is also meeting to discuss with the stakeholders on how best to deal with the challenge of vaccination so that we make sure that we've got inclusive discussions with all the stakeholders. Thank you very much, Honorable House Chair. Thank you, Honorable Minister. That's it, yeah. <coughs> Kileboe ministara kau araba utoyadi vaccine handle chena. Minister, I am um, one of the very few people I think in this house who are very happy that uh, your ministry, the department uh, through higher health, are in the process of finalizing these guidelines in relation to vaccine mandates and management of the academic year. <clears throat> um, as we, we uh, Minister, cannot allow universities, in my view, to have plans or their plans in isolation. <clears throat> Over and above those guidelines, Minister, what are you doing to ensure that students are not excluded from accessing the higher education by these vaccination policies in different institutions and what are you doing about institutions now that are refusing students uh, access to higher education? Thank you very much. Thank you, Honorable Member. Honorable Minister. 
Uh, thank you very much, uh, Honorable House Chair, and thanks to Honorable Letzier uh, for uh, an appropriate uh, follow-up question. Well, I just want to say that whilst we encourage everyone in the post-school education and training system to vac vaccinate it, as I have said, this must be balanced also with the constitutional right to education. Otherwise, we must protect both rights of those who are saying they won't vaccinate, which is unfortunate, but also we must protect the rights of those who have vaccinated to remain safe. We can't be focusing only on the rights of those who say they won't vaccinate. Therefore, that is why, as I have said, we are encouraging an inclusive discussion and an inclusive debate. The institutions, the way that they've been operating makes sense because whilst they've been pushing and insisting rightly so that students and staff must vaccinate, but they have not turned some students down. That is what I am saying they should not do in order to ensure that they get admitted to academic programs. But this does, Honorable Letia, pose a problem. How do you balance these rights when you have in the same lecture room those who have vaccinated as well as those who have vaccinated and be able to actually cater for both? That is why Higher Health has assisted us by coming with guidelines that then are ultimately going to actually help us to overcome this. I don't think there's any institution which wants to deprive any students of his or her right to actually access academic uh, institutions. I won't tolerate any unfair discrimination whilst understanding that institutions have got a right to protect everybody. Thank you very much, Honorable House Thank you, Honorable Minister. The Honorable Dr. Envy Kumalo. Thank you, Honorable House Chair. Since South Africa actually doesn't have a policy on mandatory vaccination, as stated by the minister, and given that some higher education institutions have implemented mandatory vaccination policies, which do allow for exemption for religious and medical reasons, in your own words, minister, no right is absolute. What has your department, department done or put in place to ensure that the rights of those who are exempted or are protected and that they, get, they don't get excluded from accessing facilities that vaccinated students and staff get access to, including access to resources related to online learning. Thank you very much. Thank you, Honorable Member. Honorable Minister. Uh, Honorable Envy Kumaro, thanks for the follow-up. I should have said, by the way, already, but your, your question then requires that I say this. Government is looking into this matter of vaccine mandate because the decision must be a decision by government as a whole. It can't just be a decision that gets taken by higher education sector. So for this reason, that is why the president has assigned Deputy President Didi Mabuza to actually undertake a process of consultation with a variety of stakeholders in society, which is what the deputy president is doing at this point in time, in order to be able to determine what needs to be done, what government, what position should government adopt uh, with regards to vaccine mandate. In addition, also my own Department of Science and Innovation through the, the, the Human Sciences Research Council has been conducting surveys just to establish 
What is the attitude of South Africans towards the vaccine mandate issue? Those studies are, are finalized now, and we will be releasing some of them not long from now. Together with the guidelines of higher health, that will then ensure as to how we manage the situation in a manner that balances everybody's rights. And indeed, institutions are using blended methodologies of online as well as physical contact, whilst at the same time seeking to assure the safety of everybody. I hope you will appreciate that this is not an easy matter because we are actually balancing rights that in this case are often conflicting. That is why the guidelines by higher health are important and the ones I've already issued have discussions because the institutions that are following certain policies now have had fairly wide consultations. Some of the policies that they've adopted have actually been accepted by their own university or college councils. Thank you very very much. much. Thank you very much, Honorable Minister. The Honorable Sangwa. The Honorable Sangwa. MD. Thank you, Chairperson. I'm asking this question on behalf of Honorable Zondo. Minister, Honorable Minister, vaccination dissent aside, has your department considered the operational and logistical requirement that will have to first to be implemented nationally, as well as time delays inherent in meeting such requirements, should a directive be issued which require mandatory vaccination, this would surely delay such processes and render such mandate if it is where to be issued unimplemented. I thank you. Thank you, Honorable Member. Honorable Minister. Uh, Thanks, Honorable House Chair. Sorry, I didn't hear who the member was, other than saying that uh, she's asking on behalf of Honorable uh, Zondo. Thank you for the follow-up question. Oh, Honorable Shengwa. Okay, Mashasha, thank you very much. Uh, I just want to assure you, you know, that were we to adopt a a, a mandatory vaccination policy, as, as the higher education sector, we are more than ready to deal with that because higher health has actually long been rolling out vaccination programs in our post school education and training institutions. Even in rural areas, by the way, we have got mobile clinics that have been visiting Tibet colleges and even university campuses that are in rural areas, pushing this whole thing of vaccination. And higher health has long been ready, has been working together with the Department of Health. Were we to go the route of vaccine mandates, I am quite confident that we'll actually be able to meet that with the capacity that we've built with higher health. But also in addition to that, uh, Honorable Shen, people, of course, some people have got their own uh, methods and ways, you know, some use their medical aid schemes to go and vaccinate with their own medical practitioners 
or go to particular clinics or chemists to be able to do that. But on our side, I want to assure you that there would actually be no insurmountable challenge in terms of vaccinating or ensuring that everybody who comes into our campuses is vaccinated were we to go the route of vaccine mandate. That is why we've got this huge campaign of encouraging everyone in our sector, staff and students, to be able to go and vaccinate. And we are quite comfortable that we'll be able to do that through higher health. Thank you very much, uh, Honorable House Chair. Thank you very much, Honorable Minister. The Honorable Thring. Thank you, Honorable House Chair. Honorable Minister, Section 12, Subsection 2C of our Constitution grants all South Africans the right not to be subjected to medical or scientific experiments without their informed consent. The Nuremberg Code and the Universal Declaration of Bioethical and Human Rights of UNESCO, to which South Africa is a signatory, both inform that preventative and medical interventions can only be carried out with the prior free and informed consent of the person concerned based on adequate information. Additionally, science has revealed that the COVID vaccines lose their efficacy after about six months. And those who have been vaccinated are still able to contract and transmit the, the virus. Now, knowing these and other indisputable scientific facts that the mandates and, and that mandates negatively discriminate against students, will the minister call for all educational institutions of higher learning who have instituted mandates to have these mandates unconditionally removed in keeping with the president's promise to the nation in February 2021 that vaccine mandates will not be instituted on South Africans. I thank you. Thank you very much, Honorable Member. Uh, <laughs> thanks very much, uh, House Chair, and thanks to Honorable Tring. Honorable Tring, as I have said, we have said we are calling upon everyone to vaccinate because vaccines are scientific. You yourself, Honorable Tring, you would not be sitting in Parliament today, being alive, even asking me this question, were it not for the fact that you were vaccinated right when you were born. The fact that you do not have polio is as a result that at some stage as a child, you were actually vaccinated. Your body is carrying vaccination. I actually find that some of your argument actually is anti-vaccine. You are part of the anti-vaxxers. Now you have a right to, uh, to, to adopt that. But anti-vaxxers also have no right to prescribe to those who want to vaccinate and be safe as to what actually needs to be done. That is why the route that government is following is the correct route. On a point, of order, let On the a point of order, Chair. Let the deputy Honorable president... Member, just hold your horses. Honorable Minister, you still have time to answer. Let the deputy president lead the consultation process because Sorry, we are Honorable question. String was raising a point of order. Honorable Minister, can you hold? Uh, Honorable Swallows, are you, what's the point of order? Uh, the Honorable String was raising a point of order, but I presume it related to the minister casting aspersions he, he, against his character uh, and labeling him as being an anti-vaxxer. Honorable Swartz. It is well-known fact that we are not an anti-vaxxer. Thank you. 
Honorable Swartz, I don't think that is proper. Uh, Honorable Fring cannot begin to go into an argument with a minister. Uh, Honorable McPherson, Menier McPherson, please. He, he cannot go into, 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 into a debate with the minister while he is answering the question. No, sorry, Chair. He was raising a point of order, though. I, I, I don't have a problem with him raising a point of order, but remember that it's a, the minister is responding to his question. Now he, well, he goes into a conversation with him. Thank you, I Chair. I allow that. Thank you very much. Chair, Mr. may I then raise the point of order from Yes, what's your point of order, sir? On terms of Rule 85, it is my assertion that the minister is casting aspersions against the honourable member and I'd ask you to look at the Hansard in this regard and make a ruling at an appropriate time. The basis is that he um, asserted that Mr. Thring is an anti-vaxxer when it, our position on this issue is very well known. Thank okay, you, thank you very much. I will look into that and come back to you, sir. Uh, okay. Uh, okay. Minister, you still have some some few seconds. If you if yes, you are done, it's fine. I, I but if you can still can still continue, if you have something to say, further. Yes, yeah. No, th thank you very much. I just want to say quickly, uh, Honourable House Chair, I'm willing to amend my position and say the Honourable Member Thing is not an anti-vaxxer, but his argument is similar to that of anti-vaxxers. If that is actually going to help, all what I wanted to say is that. The reason why we are emphasizing consultation is to balance everybody's right. And scientifically, vaccines do work. I want to say in my capacity as Minister of Science in this country that vaccinations do work. It's not today's thing. Much as there are challenges as to be future epidemiology of this particular virus, we cannot say with certainty, but already we've learned enough to know what actually needs to be done and how can that be done? We urge all South Africans to vaccinate and I urge consultation within our institutions whilst campaigning for vaccination to be done by everybody. Thank you very much, Honorable Vice Chair. Thank you, Honorable Mayor. May I raise my point I of order am... now, Chair? Uh, who's raising a point of order? It's Honorable Thring. Honorable Thring, what's your point of order? Uh, Chair, my point of order is I understand the, the dilemma that the minister faces and the position that he holds. Uh, but when, when members um, within the House like myself uh, who have been vaccinated, uh, who have very clearly also and continuously stated that oh. we are not anti-vaccination, but we are also pro, but we are pro-choice. Uh, the minister to cross those excursions okay. is uncalled for, uh, Chair. On, honorable Frey. Uh, Honourable Train, the, the session that we have now is for, for the ministers to, to respond to the questions that you put forward. And uh, the rule of the House has it that you have got to be happy or satisfied or understand the questions, the answer from which the minister comes from. If you are not happy with those responses, then there are particular routes to follow. 
it's that not the minister's responsibility, but you cannot go into a debate, Honourable Free. Even the the point of order that has been raised on your behalf by Mr. by the Honourable Swartz, I'm tempted to say that was a political statement, but because we have already promised that we'll come back to that, we will definitely come back to Honourable Swartz about that. I think my so point now, is made. Thank you, Chair. Honourable Swartz, thank you. I'm Honourable String, thank you very much. Question number eighty-seven. Uh, asked to the Minister of Higher Education, Science and Innovation by the Honourable Zondo. The Honourable Minister. Uh, thank you very much, Honourable House Chair, and thanks to Honourable Zondo Mjian uh, for, the, for the question. I would like to say that uh, I appointed a ministerial task team to look at the functionality and the operating model of the NSF. Because I was concerned even before I started the forensic investigation that there are certain serious capacity issues and operational deficiencies in the manner in which the NSF is operating. That has only been underlined by the, the disclaimer, the audit disclaimer that they actually got. Now, the ministerial task team gave me two weeks ago an interim report uh, on progress that they are making. And we have agreed that by the end of June, they must give me a final report on the operation's strengths and weaknesses that will determine all these issues that are being asked by Honorable uh, Zondo on internal checks and balances. There are clearly serious weaknesses on internal checks and balances of the NSF. I have no doubt about that. The interim report has said as such, but they said that they still want to go deeper to actually do a complete uh, analysis and also so that also they will come with very concrete proposals on how we strengthen this important entity such that it is able to do its work. Lastly, the total cost of the forensic investigation services is going to be 2 million rand, 19,142.77 cents. Thank you very much, Honorable House Chair. Thank you, Honorable Minister. The Honorable Sitole. Thank you, uh, Honourable Chairperson. There is a likelihood of maladministration within this department. As a sum of five billion cannot just be completely unaccounted for. I would like to know whether you are willing to commit to date upon which this forensic report will be made publicly available and further upon such publication, if any persons are found to have been acted unlawfully, but immediately extension will you commit to the department to impose on this individual. However, if you are saying no to sanctions, please provide your fully motivation. Thank you, Honorable Chair. Thank you, Honorable Stoller. Honorable Minister. <laughs> Now, 
sifumelene naba page aba pega loluta balga 5 billion rent yale mali engathayi sejenswa ngendlela yeyona ukuthi bazomnika umbiko ekupheleni kwale nyanga sikiyona kusho ukuthi ke once baqede kungunika lokho sobe sesibuka ke lombiko bese siwuphinsele committee nde lokuthi uyisikopha le parliament esesiyobanika September ukuthi mhlawumbe lokho siyokwenza ungakapheli inyanga ka April masibambele kakancane noma kanjani ngomengo bakufuna sokuhlole lombiko kodwa enyinto engifuna ukuyisho ukuthi lapho khona khona ubugebengu ukudliwa imali khona ngendlela engafanele sizoyithatha inyathe kodwa enyinto okwejobu kufuna la kesibuye siyibheke lezi imali kwesinye isikhathi azisetshenziswa ngendlela eyona hayi ngoba kukhona amasela ngokuthi ukuthola umphakathi uzocela ukuthi sicela ukufundisa inshaya yethu ukupenda nokubeka isitini kodwa bese ubona ukuthi abanabo abantu nolwazi lokuthi imali ziphathwa kanjani bese ziphathwa bidede ngimali olohlobo nalokho kufuna sekulungisa ejobu ukuthi asingagcini ngokubanisha kuphela asikwazi futhi ukuthi sigugudzela ukuthi amphakathi yakithethu phekayo siyilekelela kanjani ukuthi uma inesidingi sisibonile uma siyinika uxhaso senzisiqinisekwe sokuthi imali bayiphathisa okweyikhaliza abantu uma in other words corrective consequence management yes must be taking harsh action against the corrupt but consequence management can't be only that we come from very poor communities who have legitimate needs for training in this regard but they don't have the capacity sometimes programs do not go well because of lack of capacity rather than ill intentions for corruption so consequence management must also be about corrective action at the same time thank you very much uh, honorable house chair thank you honorable minister uh, the honorable sibeya dp thanks honorable chairperson eh baba umngqongqoshe sewushilo ukuthi uzokwenzakalani ku nsf oh so sewushilo ukuthi uzokwenzakalani ku nsf sicela ukwazi ukuthi kuyobe sekwenzakalani kulana amanye ama entities ngoba nsf uzobe sekhona okwenzakalayo kuyo yabo sabo ngamhlabeshwa honorable minister ngomboso kuwonke ama entities angaphansi kwazo zonke izinto ezitholwa umhloli mabhuku wahulumeni Auditor General ezingalungile ngenzisiqinisa ukuthi ziyalandelwa ngiqala mina nje ngokuthi la emnyangweni uma ngibambe imhlangano wami ngumqondisijikelele UDG ngithi kubona bangitshela ukuthi kuleyo nakuleyo entity okuthiwe kunezinto ezingahamba kahle sizokwenza kanjani ukuthi zezinto ziyaqondiswa babuye bazobika umbiko yabona nje cishe ngihlangana kathathu noma kane ngonyaka nomqondisi jikelele wami namadidij zakhe ngine item nje mi ngithi standing item 
corrective actions for the Auditor General's reports. Goba, hiyo into leo engi katibu. Utsong is cutting the Uglungisi inkinga. Lasi bonu kutizikona. Jengu kukomba. Eh, wa mshulu wa mapu. Wa hulmeni. Eh, u auditor general. Nagulolo shamotu. Jena mtwela stonsek. Magukono kunyele futu. Mamu subia. Ukulegi lenjukutike. Uze kumina njenga ilu. Ngelishon pegile. Umtinte. Ushukuta. Hai minister. Ukona nga kubonlana. So wazi kutisitale pansi. Gikwazi kukaza. Sibambisane ngenje la vele. Esitale sibambisane ngashenga ayo. The Honorable Seveke. Minister, for two consecutive years, the Auditor General raised concerns about the internal financial controls of the National Skills Fund and of NEFSA, which prompted you, as you rightfully said, to set up a ministerial task team to investigate and for SCOPA to call for forensic investigation to be conducted by the SIU and not merely have the SIU involved in issues that relate to its mandate from the private investigators funding, which then question your confidence in the ability of the SIU. Minister, why then why did you sought to embark on a two plus two million contractual agreement with a forensic private forensic company, whereas NEFSA's investigation were conducted by the SIU during the same period. Thank you, Honourable Member. Honourable Minister. Uh, thanks, Honourable House Chair. Honourable King, thank you very much. But I'm really thanking you halfway because your questions, they become, I'm sorry to say this, very convoluted and mixing a lot of things that do not mix. It's a pity one doesn't have time to fully explain what I'm saying. But let me quickly say this, that the investigation by the NSF, forensic investigation, was done by myself, and I had appointed private investigators. Because forensic investigators mostly are private. By the time Scopa said, why don't you ask the SIU? I'm not against working with the SIU, but I had already contracted a private forensic investigator to do the work. I wasn't running away from the SIU, as some people often claim. I had already signed an agreement. And I've said, if there are any things from this forensic investigation that would require the SIU to look into, I will consider that. But if there is no need, I will be able to act on the basis of that report. There is nothing that stops me directly to act. Either I hand over things to the NPA or I hand over things to the Hawks and so on. I will do that. NESFAS got an unqualified audit this last, this, this, this last financial year. So don't come here and give an impression that everything is just going haywire at NESFAS. What was being investigated by the SIU at NESFAS was a matter raised more than three years ago by the administrator on what he had found out when he arrived as the administrator. That's already more than three years ago. And we've said, let the SIU continue to then find out what actually happened during that time. But as of now, NESFAS has got an unqualified audit and NESFAS also has come to explain both at SCOPA as well as in the portfolio committee on additional actions they are taking over and above the corrective measures that were taken 
by the administrator. This thing of just casting aspersions to our institutions, Honorable House Chair, is just not good. Let's Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thank you. Mr. Paulson or Mr. Uh, Tambo? Honorable Paulson. Mr. Paulson, uh, House Chair. Uh, Minister, the Auditor General noted that this money could not be accounted for in the last two financial years. This is the National Skills Fund. And we're not speaking about five rand or five thousand or five million. And this money can't just disappear like this. It happens over a period of time. Why did it take you this long to be concerned about the missing funds? And also, Minister, can you take this house in to confidence and tell us that this money did not find its way into that ailing Stockfeld, the South African Communist Party? Thank you, Mr. Paulson. Uh, Honourable uh, House Chair, thank you very much. Honourable Paulson, I'm not going to be tempted by your diversified, by trying to divert my attention. To, to actually try and throw stones at a political party that is not represented here in parliament is opportunism in the worst form. You want me to start also asking about the EFF and the VBS money? Let's go and have a proper discussion so that also the EFF must start answering questions about its relationship with VPS, a matter that we are actually still going to continue. I do not want to be diverted, Honorable uh, House Chair. All what I want to say, I never order, delay. Order, honorable members, you are drowning the speaker. We can't hear what you say. I did order. not, House Chair, take long. The moment there was first time a qualified audit by the NSF, I appointed the minister and tasked him to say, what is wrong with the NSF such that it's got these problems? By the time the, 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 the audit disclaimer came, already the ministerial testing process was underway. And I have appointed a forensic investigation on time. I have not wasted time in order to be able to do that. Even before the next audit, I had already appointed this. And as I have said, this, this, this forensic investigation is gonna be completed by the end of March. Let's focus on real issues and not be diverted by this opportunistic posturing of the EFF. Thank you very much. Thank you, Honorable Minister. Uh, the Honorable Harvard, question 126. Uh, to the Minister of Health. <laughs> Thank you very much, uh, Honorable Chair. I didn't, I didn't hear you that it was my turn. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, I'll deal with the question asked by Honorable Harvard. Uh, uh, Honorable Chair and Honorable Members, our vaccination program is able to administer more than 250,000 vaccinations a day, actually up to 300 and more, 300,000 more, and is able to sustain. <clears throat> we do have uh, adequate stock uh, to reach our target of 70% of adult population and beyond. 
at the current moment, while we are just approaching 50% of at least one dose for all adults, we still have more than 20 million doses of both the Johnson & Johnson and the Pfizer vaccine combined. The challenge we face is uh, to attract more South Africans to come forward to receive their jabs so that they can all be protected. Um, this is very important. Uh, uh, we, are, we understand that because of people feel that the fourth wave has not been very severe with fewer admissions and fewer deaths. Some people feel that they are now safe, but we know that uh, all scientists and experts are telling us that in another eight to, to 10 weeks, we may be experiencing a fifth wave as we get closer to winter. So I want to just alert South Africans that it's not yet over. So we, have, uh, we are working with uh, all our provinces and also private sector, as you be aware, a number of private sector participants, pharmacies and other providers, also NGOs in making sure that our facilities for vaccination remain in place. We also have a project management unit in the department which is focus, focusing on this. We recently, just over two and a half weeks ago, uh, with the leadership of young people, launched the Kiriti program, which is to which is run by young people to attract more young people to come forward to receive vaccinations. As the Minister Zimande indicated earlier on, working very well with Higher Health, especially with uh, Deputy Minister Manamela, we are together, also with my neighbour here, Minister Zulu when we launched this youth program uh, two and a half weeks ago. Also with basic education, we are doing uh, a lot to uh, outreach to schools. In, in some of the provinces, there's agreements between our district health and the district health author uh, education, basic education to visit schools and provide vaccinations. Uh, many businesses also are, are providing facilities for vaccinations. We have reduced the interval for boosters and we have also added the mix and match, where if you had a J&J, one dose, or even with a booster, you can now have a Pfizer. If you had two Pfizers, you can have a J&J as a booster. So we're all ready uh, to make sure that as we uh, reduce the restrictions and uplift, as the president will announce at some stage, the replacement of the state of disaster, these facilities will remain ready so that South Africans can get vaccinated and be protected. Thank you very much, Honourable Chair. Thank you, Honourable Minister. Uh, the Honourable Harvard. Thank you, Honourable House Chair. What support is the Department providing for different social and economic sectors in developing vaccination policies to increase the vaccination rollout? Thank you. Thank you, Honourable Member, Honourable Minister. Thank you very much, Honourable Chair. Um, our unit, which is uh, managing the vaccination program, is very agile and very responsive. Anytime we get a request for partnership and assistance, we are always there uh, with the private sector, with government departments, with public entities. Anytime we get a request uh, for cooperation and support, we are always there. Where we may need additional expertise, there is a wide range of experts out there who we always rope in 
in case there might be a particular matter. Just to give an example, when there was an issue about uh, the, the basic education, the opening of schools and improving vaccination, we also brought in a pediatric specialists uh, to make sure that we can even add uh, more information in terms of the safety in that sector. So anytime any uh, uh, sector wants uh, assistance, private, public, we, we are always making sure that we provide the necessary support. Thank you. Thank you, Honorable Minister. The Honorable Sangwa. Thank you, House Chair. Honorable Minister, according to recent press statement by your offices, only 29.3% of the eight, of the 18 to 34 age group is fully vaccinated. And apparently another 5 million of this group will need to be vaccinated in order to achieve 60% coverage. What specific action has the government taken to target this age group, considering their very low vaccinated status. I thank you. Thank you, Honorable Sangwa. The Honorable Minister. Thank you very much, uh, Honorable Sangwa. Uh, Honorable Chair, indeed, that uh, information is correct. Uh, in terms of uh, just at least one jab for the young people of 18 to 34, uh, we are at just under 30% of full vaccination. And in terms of just at least one jab, just under 35%. So that's the lowest in the age groups in the country in terms of adults. So uh, one of the major uh, interventions is what I mentioned that uh, uh, two and a half weeks ago with uh, uh, Honorable Manamela and uh, my neighbor here, Honorable Zulu, we were launching this Kiredi campaign uh, which, in fact, I shouldn't say we were launching because we were supporting. This is a program which is run by young people, young health professionals, and they're also recruiting other uh, young people outside the health profession. And they've made it very clear that they want to run the campaign. The messages must come from them. They've got a number of initiatives which we are supporting, but also we are, we are also working with them to encourage various industries to provide relevant incentives. And in this case, we want to welcome the contribution of the, of the network companies. At this stage, uh, your, uh, some of your CELC and, 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 and also the MTN is providing data as part of the incentive to the young people. We're talking to the other network providers to also provide data because data is important for young people to, who are looking for work, for education, for various opportunities, business, and so on. So these are some of the initiatives which are run by the young people, but also in the media, we're encouraging a lot of media houses to also continue. And I must admit also here, that a lot of media houses have come to the party. Radio, TV, you, you know, if you listen to many of these stations, from time to time, they do broadcast messages encouraging vaccination. And also my other neighbor on the left, uh, Minister of Sports, Arts and Culture, is working with us in promoting a, a return to sporting activities and spectators 
by encouraging vaccination. So there are all those interventions which you are involved in. Thank you, Honorable Chair. The, thank you very much, Honorable Minister. The, uh, the Honorable Dr. S. S. Chambewaya. Thank you, Chairperson. Honorable Sirisa, answering on behalf of Honorable Dr. Tendakwaya. Uh, Minister, what scientific information is the government relying on that ending all COVID restrictions will not further endanger our society from future variants of this, of this virus? Taking into consideration that there are some companies that are already implicating or are already have a mandate of vaccination, which is a mandate to them. What implication will this have on the vaccine mandates that some of these companies have already adopted? Thank you, Chair. Thank you, Honorable Member, Honorable Minister. Uh, thank you, Honorable Member, Honorable Chair. Uh, I think just adding to what uh, my colleague, Minister Zimande said earlier on, <clears throat> um, we want to balance um, on the one hand, opening up society, opening up, you know, social activity, opening up business, at the same time, encouraging people to vaccinate. So that's why our approach is not going to be a reckless one in terms of opening up. There will be no contradiction in terms of uh, those companies which in protection of their own workforce, they've got the right to develop policies and they've determined the policies to say that uh, in this institution, uh, the workers need to be vaccinated or otherwise provide reasons why not. This will uh, hopefully uh, make sure that more and more people get vaccinated because if we are able to reach that 70% of uh, coverage of all adults and also even on the younger people of between 12 and 17 who are also eligible, if we can reach a bigger coverage, then even as variants come, uh, that's, the, that's the, 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 the information as determined from the research by various scientists, there will be less variants because less people will be transmitting the virus even if they do get infected. So we will be able to even open up even more activities and even drop even some of the current protections because then a bigger portion of the population will be protected. So this is not either or. Uh, we want to keep on encouraging people to vaccinate companies which have particular uh, uh, occupational health and safety policies amongst which they have included vaccination. We want to encourage that so that more people can get vaccinated and then it helps us to open up more activities in society. Thank you, Honorable Chair. Thank you, Honorable Minister. The Honorable PV Studen. Honorable Studen. It's written PV here. It's, there's no fund Studen. If it is fund Studen, then it's the Honorable Fund Studen. If it's not from sudden, then it's Honorable P. Studen. Do we have such a member here? I will pass. Uh, the next question. Sorry, Chair. Chair, can we take that question then? That follow up. If the Honorable Member is not going to take it. The question of Mr. Van Staden. Yes, if she's not going to take it, the DA would like to take the question. Okay. Okay. 
if if if, if the question if the if the question is not utilised, it should be it can be distributed to the first come first serve. So the DA would yeah. like to take the question. This is the DA member. Yes, can we take it? Just just wait. Just wait. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's not clear who is Mr. Van Staden or Mr. Staden. Is the FF plus? Mr. Mufferson wins in Jan So, so FF plus, man. Chair, if I may. If the honourable member is not going Ta. to take the question, it can, be, it can be distributed o to honorable, the Honourable McPherson, please, Monikang's father, so please. The party is not here, you are not representing that party. Honourable Chair, on uh, can order? we go to question 100? Sorry, Chair, on a point of order. Is all the, all the, honor, the honourable member from FF Plus? Yes, honourable member. From FF Plus, not you, Mr. Van Staten. Honorable Chair, uh, may I just say that uh, Honorable Van Staten has a problem with his signal, but I'm not ready to do a follow-up question. Okay, okay. Thank you very much. Sorry, Chair, on a point of order. Honorable, honorable, honorable members, order, order, honorable members. Order, honourable members, honourable Macpherson, what's your point of order, sir? Chair, you'll recall that before the house, honourable. Uh, on, on, Sorry, members. Chair, if you're going to ask, uh, can you ask her to shut up? If she's asking me to shut up, uh, honourable Van Staden. Okay, okay, honourable members. Chair, may I may I suggest that under when before COVID, if there was no one to ask a follow-up question, it was to the chair's discretion then to reallocate the question to another party that wanted to take it. Honourable so I would ask for your discretion to reallocate Thank, thank you very question. much. Thank you very I'm much. Yeah. Honourable Macpherson, it is at the discretion of the chair. Thank you very much. My discretion in this particular regard is that we couldn't go ahead with that with that question. And fortunately, a member of the of, of FF Plus stood up to acknowledge that he is their member. Thank you very much. We will deal with that later on if we have a problem. But for now, can we go to question number hundred? Sorry, Chair Has Chair. Sorry, may I rise? So I understand Mr. Uh, Fitzgerald is on honorable, the honorable Swans. He's on the platform now. The, the Freedom Front, Mr. Starden. He just said, I'm there. I'm here, Chair. But, but where is Mr. Van Starden? He, he is there. Chairperson, I was thrown off, but I'm back. I, my, my signal was, was dropping. Okay. Okay. Thank you, Mr. Swart. Honorable Starden, is it, is, is it Honorable Van Starden? 
It's Honorable Fun Star, and thank you, Chief. Thank President. you very much. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, yeah. Go ahead, sir. Uh, uh, thank you, Chairperson. Honorable Minister, with the President's announcement during the State of the Nation address. Uh, order, order, please. Uh, the Honorable Minister cannot hear what the other member is asking. Uh, he's got my indulgence. Honorable Staden, Von Staden, go ahead again. Thank you, Chairperson. Honorable Minister, with the President's announcement during the State of the Nation address, that government must first amend the National Health Act before the state of disaster can be lifted. Can the Honourable Minister indicate why should the Health Act be amended first? Does the government plan to make vaccinations and vaccination passports compulsory through this amendment? And don't the Honourable Minister think that compulsory vaccinations and vaccination passports will revolt South Africans? Thank you, Honourable Chairperson. Thank you, Honourable Staden. Honourable Min Minister. Well, thank you very much, uh, Honourable Chair. I think Honourable Van Staden must just go and read the President's speech of the SONA. He will not find any line there which says the Department of Health should amend the National Health Act. What the President said was that uh, the Health Department will provide regulations using the National Health Act. So what we have been working on is regulations under the National Health Act in terms of the management of infectious and notifiable diseases to specifically respond to COVID. So that process is uh, virtually co uh, almost concluded. We have already made presentations to the relevant structures in government and that matter is being uh, considered as we speak. And, and just to confirm what Minister Zimande said earlier on, Deputy President is consulting with some of the uh, structures, of, uh, public structures, in line with those regulations, so that we can then migrate from, uh, from uh, disaster management to a health-managed uh, pandemic. And in terms of what those will contain, um, uh, Honourable Fanzaden must just be patient. Uh, uh, the, the regulations will be made public. They will be published for public comment. And uh, him and his party will judge from there whether we're talking about uh, mandatory passports, vaccine passport. Must just be patient. It will be in the public in the next few days in the government gazette. When that happens, he can comment together with his party. Thank you, Honourable Chair. Thank you very much, Honourable Minister. Go to question 100, asked by the Honourable Ismail to the, to, to the Minister of Health. And uh, Honourable Minister. Uh, thank you, thank you uh, Honourable House Chair. Um, this relates to the question of um, what the, home, the Department of Home Affairs has published in terms of the critical skills. And there has been a concern from various uh, uh, stakeholders, and, and this is what the honorable member is uh, relating to. Now, just to explain that the Department of Home Affairs used a specific uh, a kind of uh, you know, benchmark in terms of determining which skills are actually critical skills. So it's not in relation to whether these skills may be in short supply in some institution, but as a country, uh, and, 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 and therefore they look at 
whether this is a hard to feel is a, is a skill which falls under the category, for instance, of hard to fill. And there are a lot of vacancies which are not being able to be filled for at least six months in that category, whether there is a vacancy growth. In other words, there's increasing number of vacancies in that area, whether there is vacancy pressure amongst others. Now, the, the reality in the health sector is that in the generic professions of health, in most of this medical, nursing, pharmacy, physio, and so on, we are producing sufficient numbers overall in terms of being able to can fulfill the public good. But the problem is that the distribution, it's a problem in that many of those skills you find that they migrate into private sector, also into the urban areas, and there's a struggle in, 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 in the rural areas to attract some of those skills. But also, um, in, in, in terms of that, therefore, um, you find also situations where, because of budget uh, stress, even where the, some of these professionals like doctors are available, but some of the areas where they could get posts, there's not enough financial resources to attract them. So when they balance all this in the various health professions, they find that it's not an absolute shortage of many of these skills it's more of distribution and uh, financial resources and attracting those uh, skills into relevant places rather than absolute scarcity. So, but because of that situation, historically, especially in rural areas, uh, I worked in the rural hospital where 90% of my staff, medical staff, were foreign doctors. So that situation does exist. So we are engaging with Home Affairs to address that anomaly. But even though absolute, you may not have a shortage of certain skills, but some of especially your more specialized skills, there might be inadequate numbers, but to get them where they should be is a problem. So th those are the things which we are addressing. Uh, and, and we hope that in this uh, engagement with the Department of Home Affairs, we can be able to find amicable solution so that where you can only attract foreign graduates, you should still be able to do so. Even though there might be 10 South Africans uh, actually, who you could have attracted in Kandule, uh, Honorable Chief Whip, but it may be difficult to bring them there. So those are the things which you want to discuss and see how we deal with those anomalies. Thank you, Honorable Chair. Thank you very much, Honorable Minister. Honorable members, the time allocated for questions. Which one? Which one? Which one? Which one? Which one? This one. This one. So we can go beyond. Oh, okay. Okay. I am advised to take the honourable members, please. I've been advised to take the. <laughs> Uh, I, I, I'm advised to check the, 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 the questioner and, uh, and have a follow-up. And thereafter, we'll uh, go to the first order. And uh, I'll be welcoming the chair, Boroto, to the, to the front. Honorable H. Ismail. Thank you, Chair. Minister. Let me remind you, during the COVID-19 pandemic, 
Hospitals had to postpone elective surgeries as healthcare workers fell ill amid existing shortages of critical care nurses in theaters and ICU. Now, South Africa currently has 1.1 nurses per thousand people as compared to China, it has a 3.1 ratio per thousand people, and the UK, it has an 8.4 ratio per thousand people. Further to this minister, South Africa currently spends 83 million rand a year on Cuban doctors. Now it's a sad reality that government values political connections over the health and well-being of its own people. It is clear that we need medical practitioners, I my hand up, but we cannot exclude these groups Chairperson. from the critical skills list. Chairperson. While importing Honorable selective members. groups with political Honorable connections, members. as Please. we have seen with uh, the Cuban doctors. Honorable Ismail, yeah. Honorable Ismail, can you can you, can you hold for a minute? Honorable members, I've got time right in front of me. No, it's not about time, Chairperson. Give me yeah, a but, but members should be given a chance to pose the questions that they want. No, but I... I Honorable Zoro, what is the point of... Yeah, it would be helpful, Chairperson, to assist because, you know, as ministers, as we sit here, when members do not uh, uh, give us the, the question properly and read, read very fast, it's difficult. Then it becomes difficult to answer the question. It's just my request that the honorable member please not go too fast so that we can hear the question. Thank you very much, honorable minister. But for the, for the, for the sake, for the, for the sake of the smooth running of this house and the decorum of the house, I would request that members should not be disturbed when they are on the floor. If the minister did not hear the question properly in his or her response, she would be saying, I did not hear it. At times, members do not pose questions. Instead, they make statements. Then it is at the discretion of the minister to respond to either that statement or, yeah. So really, uh, let's allow members to pose questions. And members are also requested to give ministers a chance to respond. If they are not happy with the responses, they know what route to follow. Honorable McPherson. Thanks, Chair. The reason why the minister can't hear is because her own members behind make a noise continuously. So if you correctly, if you correctly have asked them Honourable to allow Marcus, the speaker to Honourable make Marcus, the question, then the moved, minister will hear. So if you can ask her own colleagues to Honourable McPherson. Honourable McPherson. Honourable McPherson. Honourable McPherson. Please. Please. Uh, Honorable Ismail, I will give you a chance again. Do I have my, all my time? Should you have your time. <laughs> Thank you. Go ahead. Please. Please. You have your time. Minister, I hope you can hear me now. Honorable members, please just give her a chance. Uh, honorable members. Minister, what, what we need to, Honorable members, what we also need to, to consider is that we, 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 we come from a large house where we could not 
hear such big noise. So we have to moderate our voices in order to suit this environment. It's rather too small. Please. Honorable Ismail. Thank you, Chair. Minister, during the COVID-19 pandemic, hospitals had to postpone elective surgeries as healthcare workers fell ill amid existing shortages of critical care nurses, most especially in theaters and ICU. Now, South Africa currently has 1.1 nurses per 1,000 people, as compared to China, that has a 3.1 ratio per 1,000 people, and the UK, that has an 8.4 ratio per 1,000 people. Further to this, Minister, South Africa currently spends 83 million rand a year on Cuban doctors. It's a sad reality that government values political connections over the health and well-being of its own people. It is clear that we need medical practitioners, but we cannot exclude these groups from the critical skills list while importing selective groups with political connections, as we have seen with the Cuban doctors. Now, instead of funding countries like Cuba, these funds could have been more adequately used to develop medical skill training centers locally, thus increasing our critical medical skills input. So, Minister, what are the reasons that Cubans get preferential treatment over other international medical practitioners because of the exclusion on the critical skills list? Is it not that because you have so many Honorable Cuban member, doctors that home affairs has decided that healthcare well practitioners time. should not be included on the critical skills list? Cuba is progressive. Honorable, Honorable members, order, order, Honorable members. Order, honourable members. Honourable Ismail, we have rules to consider. Your question was supposed to be only a minute, and we have gone well beyond that. Honourable, uh, honourable Deputy Chief Whip. Honourable Deputy Chief Whip of the majority. Thank you very much, uh, honourable Chairperson. Thank you very much, Honorable Chairperson. A follow-up question should be one minute. You don't make a statement. <laughs> hey, sit down, I'm on the floor. Honorable McPherson, if you're going to behave this way, I'm going to request you to leave the house. You are disrupting this proceedings. Honorable McPherson, order, 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 please. Honorable McPherson, you were asking questions while you were seated there. Now, I do not know what is happening with you. You are on your feet now to continue with the disruption of the house. I'm asking you, please do not do this. Otherwise, I will request you to leave the house if you go on with this. Please. Honorable Deputy Chief Whip. Thank you very much, uh, Honorable Chairperson. As House Chair, as I was saying, a follow-up question should be one minute. And you don't have to ask more than one question. The honorable member asked three questions. Then the other, the other thing, honorable house chairperson, 
the question, the follow-up question, should emanate from the original question, not a new question. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you very much, honorable members. Honorable Chairperson, I have my hand up. Uh, honorable members, thank you very much. Order. I will not allow you, Honorable McPherson. Honorable members, in response to what the Honorable Deputy Chief Whip has raised, I would like to read this to you. A member who asks a supplementary question may make a statement or express an opinion, but the time allowed for the first supplementary question is limited to two minutes, the first. And for subsequent honorable members, I'm not yet through, honorable members. And the subsequent supplementary question, questions is one minute. So please. Honorable members, these are your rules. These are your rules. So please, let us not make the work of the chairperson so difficult. So please, let us respect our own rules. And, and the time for questions, and the time allocated for questions has expired. Outstanding replies received will be printed tonight. On a point of order. Chair, on a point of order. Chairperson. A point of order. Chairperson. The secretary. Chairperson, on a point of order, please. Chair, on a point of order. Honorable McPherson, what's your problem? Chairperson. The, the question has been posed to the minister. A follow-up was posed by, by the member. The response has not been forthcoming, and the supplementary follow-ups have not... You, you have to complete the entire sequence. You can't Honourable stop the session. Honourable McPherson. Honourable McPherson. There are certain things that should happen before you become the chairperson. There are certain things that should happen before you become the chairperson. You cannot work that way. Chairperson, on a point the absence, of order, in the absence of here. that which you are looking for, that the, the minister has at liberty to, 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 to give a written reply. So what is your problem? Honorable Chairperson, honorable, honorable members. Chairperson, Chairperson. Honorable members. Chair. Chairperson, the, the honorable the, member, honorable McPherson, would you please give the house a chance? But the chairperson, the chair, can I please address you, chair? The secretary, chairperson, can I please address you? The secretary will read the order of the day. Please address you. Consideration of 2022 fiscal framework and revenue proposals. Can I please address and you? report of standing committee on finance thereon.
as I welcome Honorable Broto. Uh, we call upon the Honorable J.M. Maswangani, virtually. Uh, can some oh, pick? Let me take it to the rules committee then, because all my schooling. I can't tell by Chapsiki. Wow, Ubo, you're in Lamlao, you're the public of South Africa. The Minister of Finance, Mr. Ino Godongwana, tabled the 2022 budget before Parliament on the 23rd February 2022 in terms of uh, Section 27 of uh, PFMA and Section 7, Subsection 1 of the Money Bills Amendment Procedure and Related Matters Act, Act Number 9 of 209 Money Bills Act. The Minister, together with the DG, senior officials from Treasury, briefed the Committee on Finance on the 24th of February, 2022. The committees received the post-budget input from the Parliamentary Budget Office and the Financial and Fiscal Commission on the 1st of March, 2022. Overview. The Standing Committee on Finance acknowledges that the consolidated revenue is expected to increase from 1.72 trillion in 2021-22 to 1.77 trillion in 2022-23, reaching 1.98 trillion in 2024-25. Furthermore, the committee acknowledges the 32 billion rand increase in NESFAS funding for existing bazaar holders and new entrants to institutions of higher learning, as well as 24.6 billion rand allocated to higher teachers. The committee also acknowledges the 15 billion rand small uh, allocated to small businesses for the loan guarantee allocation. We further also acknowledge on the positive note, the 90 rand increase on the social grant. The global and domestic economic outlook and recovery has improved since 2021 midterm budget as a result there has been additional tax generated. The additional 61.7 billion rand collected is above projections. The upward revision shows an improvement in personal income tax, corporate income tax, and VAT. It was estimated that the global output will increase by 5.9%, but is expected to moderate to 4.4% in 2022. Inflation is expected to continue rising in 2022. Price pressures will average about 3.9% in advanced economies and 5.9% in emerging and developing economies. It is unclear, Chairperson, whether the 2022 budget's macroeconomic and fiscal assumption, policy assumptions took into account the conflict between Russia and Ukraine. 
This conflict will affect the global and the domestic economy outlook and pose significant risk to the 2022 fiscal framework. In essence, the macroeconomic assumptions and considerations underpinning the 2022 fiscal framework will change in the current year. South Africa, Zimbabwe, and Russia are major global producers of platinum group metals, the PGMs. Economic sanctions on Russia uh, may lead to increased demand for South Africa's PGMs at a higher prices. However, there is a looming food price inflation with Ukraine being a key agricultural producer, amongst other things, uh, maize, wheat, soya bean, and sunflower oil. The prices of these produce have gone up significantly. By last week, Friday, the 4th of March, 2022, the Brent crude oil price was uh, nearly $115 per barrel. That is 17% higher than on the 23rd of February uh, this year, the day before the conflict began. This adds to already mounting energy price inflation pressures. Recently, we have witnessed the skyrocketing increase of petrol prices. Energy and commodity price shocks will have an impact, especially on poor households, for whom food and fuel are a uh, 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 fuel are a higher proportion of expenses. The Russia-Ukraine conflict might create complex policy trade-offs, further complicating the economic landscape as the country recovers from COVID-19 pandemic crisis. This fiscal framework is presented against the background of shocks brought on by the COVID-19 pandemic COVID-19 has led to con contractions in the GDP, increased debt levels, and higher unemployment and income losses, all of which have served to further entrench inequality and poverty. Honorable Chairperson, another challenge was the July 2021 unrest, which has placed additional strain on government as public resources had to be marshaled to extend the provision of income support as well as to aid the recovery of businesses. The private fixed capital formation declined by minus 1.2%, while public corporations' fixed capital formations increased by 9.5%. The unemployment recovery continues also to be sluggish. Chairperson, the official unemployment rate rose by 0.5 percentage point from 34.4 percent in the second quarter of 2021 to 34.9 percent in the third quarter of 2021. According to the expanded definition of unemployment, the rate increased by 2.2 percentage points to 46.6 percent, narrowing tax base percent due to rising unemployment may put pressure on public spending, increase the budget deficit, and increase borrowing requirements. High unemployment, inequality, global financial volatility are destabilizing, constraining growth, and deter 
investment. Chairperson, a consolidated budget deficit of 6.5% of GDP is projected for 2022-23, narrowing to 4.2% of GDP in 24-25. The South African Reserve Bank continued to tighten the monetary policy, increasing the repo rate by a cumulative 50 uh, basis points to 4% in January 2022. The debt servicing cost will increase uh, uh, to be higher than 300 billion rand per year from 2022-2023, becoming the fastest growing expenditure or spending item. However, over the MTF period, the learning and culture will decrease by minus 1.1% and the social development decreases by minus 2.5%. These budget adjustments disregard the effect on employment. A balance between employment uh, preservation and budget cuts must be maintained. By the government's own admission, they are unlikely, or government is unlikely to realize many of the targets of the NDP. The committee chairperson held public hearings on the 2nd of March, 2022. The committee received written and oral submissions from stakeholders. Stakeholders raised a number of issues. Amongst those is that uh, they expressed concern about SARS conduct during VET audits and withholding of VET refunds. To this effect, we recommended that SARS and the stakeholders concerned should meet within three months to deal with these issues. Stakeholders also raised the issue of a planned or a looming retrenchment of almost 6,000 South African post office workers, which they believe can be stopped. Furthermore, they raised the issue of the bailouts to SOEs and recommended also that uh, the road accident fund, RAF, uh, 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 should be done away and be replaced by the road accident benefit scheme. And that bill should be brought to parliament. In return, National Treasury and SARS responded on the issues raised by stakeholders on the 4th of March, 2022. Committee observations. The committee welcomes the 2022 budget and acknowledges that it strikes a difficult balance between the growing uh, between growing the economy, ensuring fiscal sustainability, maintaining expenditure over the uh, medium term, and providing tax relief to individuals and companies. The committee appreciates the productive environment in which the 2022 budget was discussed between the National Treasury, SARS, and civil society. The committee further welcomes National Treasury and SARS comprehensive response to the issues raised by stakeholders. On macroeconomic issues, the committee expressed uh, that uh, expected the real growth, GDP growth of 1.8% over the medium term on average will not be sufficient to reduce poverty, inequality, and high rates of unemployment. Furthermore, the committee acknowledges 
some progress made in addressing structural constraints growth. The committee recommends that National Treasury should re report progress made every quarter on structural reforms, including managing the electricity crisis that negatively affects uh, consumers and the SMEs. The committee recommends that for policy certainty, National Treasury should clearly articulate the government's economic policy on growth from which the economic uh, recovery and reconstruction was derived in the upcoming 2022 uh, MTBBS. As indicated in the previous report, we believe that reindustrialization and localization should become key pillars of our national reconstruction and inclusive economic recovery strategy. On employment programs, the committee recommends that national treasury should regularly provide progress report on this regard. There are many uh, programs that government has come up with, including the presidential youth uh, program. So we'll expect from the side of the treasury to re report progress on a regular basis. The committee further knows that it will remain difficult for the labor market to absorb new entrants, particularly the youth and the, uh, the unskilled, with moderate projected economic growth over the next three years. Given the phenomenal high level of unemployment, the committee urges the government to seek to avoid the job losses pending in various public entities and negotiate with trade unions management and other stakeholders in this regard within the relevant regulatory framework and norms. The committee notes the proposal to decrease the corporate uh, income tax by one, percent, uh, one percentage point, part of which is the government's intention to restructure the tax system by reducing avoidance uh, opportunities, expanding the tax base, and encouraging the investment. However, we believe that it is not, the committee is not convinced that a reduction in this CIT necessarily will lead to investment of this saving into the economy. Therefore, the committee recommends that Treasury should encourage the private sector to reciprocate in return to stop holding the money and invest their money in the economy. On expenditure, Chairperson, uh, 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 related to debt uh, related issues, the committee observed that uh, gross loan debt now expected to stabilize at 5.43 trillion or 75% of the GDP in 24-25, a year earlier than projected in 2021 budget. The debt level as a percentage of GDP nonetheless remains high and the country might face a debt trap. The committee recommends that National Treasury reports quarterly, as we have reiterated before. Honorable Maswangani, is a date as no om. In conclusion, Chairperson, we also recommend that government should... Honorable member, your time uh, no, has expired. So that, I mean, the committee recommends in conclusion, Chairperson, that uh, government should procure local assembled cars. That in itself. Honorable. 
No kids. Okay. I'm, I'm watched too. No kids. Uh, I will call on the Honorable George. Thank you, Chairperson. The fiscal framework is the national budget for the next three years. It estimates how much money government will receive in revenue, how much it will spend, and the difference between the two. Since 2008, government has spent more than it received, and the deficit has ballooned to 386 billion rand for next year. Interest repayments will be more than 1 trillion rand over the next three years. Many South African households know the burden of debt and how difficult it can be to break the debt cycle without taking decisive action to earn more, spend less, or both. Unlike struggling households battling to make ends meet as inflation rises and the cost of living spirals upward, government has the luxury of access to other people's money in the form of tax, and this has made them lazy. Year after year, Scopa hears how billions of rands paid by hardworking taxpayers have been irregularly and wastefully spent and nobody gets held to account. This is the culture of corruption that has taken a grip around the throat of our public finances. Taxpayers won't pay tax when they know that their money is being wasted. Money is already tight enough. The tax base continues to shrink as skilled South Africans head abroad to escape a debt trap created by a government increasingly out of touch with the reality that South Africa has run out of money and no amount of borrowing can fix what the ANC has broken. The fiscal framework is a powerful reflection of the choices that government has made. Government has not been able to risk to lift the revenue numbers. It has not earned more because our economy is not growing. Yes, it is true that COVID smacked our economy really hard at a time when we could least afford it. But we were already on our knees before the pandemic reached our shores because government chose the wrong road for our economy. It chose to position an incompetent government as the primary economic growth enabler. The vehicle for this growth was to be the state-owned enterprises. Year after year, while the state-owned enterprises underdelivered, yet overpaid the cadres deployed to loot them. One finance minister after the next bailed them out to the tune of nearly 200 billion rand and counting. The opportunity cost of this has been the economic growth that we never had and the exponentially higher revenue we never received, the jobs that never resulted the poverty cycle that never got broken, the houses for the homeless that never got built, or the schools to feed eager young minds, or the hospitals to heal the sick. Enormous damage was done. Instead, the public sector wage bill grew bigger and bigger, bloated with millionaire managers, while front, the front line got depleted. And the so-called broad-based black economic empowerment meant to redress past injustice just made a few people rich and left everyone else behind. It was refreshing to to hear President Ramaphosa talk of a business sector generating the jobs that government knows it cannot deliver. And it was also refreshing to hear the new finance minister speak in the same direction. I hope, minister, that you will break the mold that your predecessors wouldn't or couldn't. The DA will not support this fiscal framework because it would look much better if the minister was actually going to do what he and the president say they will do. We need to attract capital into our economy for it to grow. And, and as our economy grows, GDP will rise and revenue increase. Investment will come from local and foreign business and from domestic savings. There was nothing in the budget to enthuse business. A much stronger signal from government is needed. Reduction of the bloated, unaffordable public sector wage bill, changes to labor regulations to encourage employment, an actual stop to the SOE bailouts, tax holidays and tax exemptions for startups, removing tax barriers to savings, 
and a cut in the tax on fuel. All of this is possible, but none of it happened. And that shows on the fiscal framework. The silence on the new state-owned enterprise to oversee the others must end. Hard-pressed taxpayers want to know if any of their hard-earned money will be thrown into this madcap idea. They know a swimming pool when they see one, no matter how hard government argues that it's a fire pool. Our energy crisis with rolling blackouts again today and the looming water crisis will never be solved if there isn't any tangible action. The problem is credibility. The ANC government spoke for itself when it abstained as the United Nations voted against the Russian Federation's illegal invasion of the Ukraine. In the likely event that this war drags on, sanctions against Russia will impact on its allies as well. And the ANC has painted us firmly into that corner. As financial pressure piles up on Russia, its ANC friends who celebrated with cocktails while its tanks rolled across the Ukrainian border will put their own interests first and drive our economy further into the red. Our economy knows what pariah status can do, and we are already on the Financial Action Task Force watch list for not fighting money laundering and terrorist financing strongly enough. Punitive action aside, our economy will not grow if our major trading partners are at war. The minister is unable to commit to a basic income grant because he's not confident that he can fund it. If GDP rises and revenue with it and the expenditure is better managed by making the hard choices, then it is possible and support for vulnerable unemployed South Africans can increase as more jobs are generated on a rising growth rate. That is the path out of the current unemployment and poverty trap that the ANC has walked us into one misstep after the other. We now face the real prospect of stagflation, low growth and rising prices, and that is going to hurt every South African unless urgent action is taken to unlock the private sector and reduce the fuel price. Do what you say you will do, Minister, and in October the picture can look a lot better. Thank you, Chairperson. Thank you. We now invite the Honorable Shibambu. No, thank you very much, House Chair. The Economic Freedom Fighters rejects the proposed fiscal framework as introduced by the Minister of Finance during the budget speech uh, last week. We know that after the budget, there were talk shops called public hearings, which under balanced circumstances were supposed to interrogate the budget and present superior alternatives to an otherwise neoliberal and right-wing budget whose aim is to consolidate, deepen, and strengthen the white capitalist establishment on the supposition that such will in the future trickle down to ordinary people. We take note that for the first time since 1994, the biggest expenditure item on the budget is debt services cost, meaning that the state will spend 301 billion rents, paying the interest of the more than 4.7 trillion debt that the Southern government owes to different domestic and global financial institutions, which regrettably include the IMF and the World Bank. Many other countries in the African continent, including Ethiopia, Angola, Tanzania, Egypt, Kenya, and many others are borrowing money and entering into developmental partnerships with financial institutions from different parts of the world. What is markedly different about these loans and partnerships is that they result in significant and impactful infrastructure development programs 
and building of new industrial zones, which in turn create jobs and reduce poverty. On the contrary, the Southern government borrows billions of rents to pay salaries and to pay the multinational corporations that are frog-matching South Africa into an evidently unjust energy transition. The trillions of rents the Southern government borrowed from both domestic and global capitalist banks are not adding any significant value to the development of the productive forces, is not creating additional jobs, is not reducing poverty. These trillions of rents borrowed by the Southern government come with conditionalities and certainly are an instrument to undermine South Africa's policy and political and strategic sovereignty. The most perfect illustration that South Africa's policy sovereignty is undermined is witnessed through the so-called structural reforms, which, if you read closely, are not different from the structural adjustment programs that seek to privatize South Africa's state-owned assets. The South African Airways has already been privatized to a consortium that is linked to the dominant white capitalist establishment here in South Africa, and not to a strategic equity partner would have added the much-needed value into the airline. The mutilation of ESCOM into three different divisions is a direct privatization of energy generation, which will evidently soon lead to the privatization of both energy transmission and distribution. And despite the ruling party's resolution five years ago to create a state-owned bank, which they said is a matter of agency, and the repeated commitments by the Minister of Finance in this administration. The state-owned bank is not yet created, and the Minister of Finance said during the budget briefing that he does not have a mandate from his own president to create a state-owned bank. And despite the ruling party's resolution to discontinue the private ownership of the South African Reserve Bank, the central bank remains in private hands, and currently, is at the forefront of irrationally and unlawfully destroying black-owned insurance companies. The 2022 fiscal framework announced a reduction of corporate income tax by 1%, despite lack of in any empirical evidence that such will lead to increased investment and job creation. Since 2020, South Africa has lost more than 2 million jobs, and almost all these jobs were lost in the private sector. Yet this government still insists that jobs must be created by the private sector. There is currently more than 11 million people in South Africa who need jobs and cannot fund them. Yet the budget does not say anything concrete and believable to create jobs for the people of South Africa. The reality is that almost everything else that the National Treasury does is not leading to stimulation of the economy, it's not leading to the development of the productive forces, it's not leading to job creation, it's therefore not leading to poverty uh, uh, reduction. There is continued refusal to accept that you can use fiscal and procurement policies to drive industrial local expansion, but National Treasury is not utilizing that instrument uh, much more meaningfully. We reiterate our demands as the economic freedom fighters that we must stop all forms of privatization. All privatization must stop of all companies, whether it's denial and all of those things. They can play a strategic role if they are given a clear direction and meaning. We still demand for the creation of a state-owned bank, and the nucleus of that state-owned bank must be the African bank, which already has got the infrastructure to then roll out that particular program.
We then call again that the bill which we have introduced as the EFF to discontinue private ownership of the central bank must be passed by this parliament before the end of 2022 so that we can join more than 90% of banks in the world that are owned by central government. We demand that there must be a clear plan in terms of industrial expansion, but also we should explore developmental partnerships, not just burdening the South African fiscals with loans from the colors and rapacious multinational banks and domestic institutions without any meaningful contribution to the South African economy. We reject the bill, the, the, the budget with, with, with with contempt, and we know because it is not going to create anything. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, we now, okay. Thank you, honorable members. Thank you. Is Kulumes Landela, Thank you very much, uh, House Chairperson. During the minister's opening remarks of the 2022 budget speech, he stressed that the 2022 budget was designed to strike in a code, a delicate balance between growing the economy, fiscal sustainability, and supporting livelihood close code. The minister further advised that economic growth will be subdued and that over the medium term, it will not be sufficient to reduce poverty and inequality in South Africa. Honorable Chair, at the outset, the minister told the country that there has been no high-level arrest and prosecution for those who have stolen money from the state, whether this was from corruption related to COVID-19 or state capture. When communities ask why they have no electricity, while the water has been cut for months, where they can provide better for their families through tax relief, the answer is simple. Government has done nothing. On Texas, Honorable Chair, the minister, instead of increasing excise duties on products such as cigarettes, which affect the day-to-day -day running of our hospitals and place a health burden on our primary health care facilities, when heart disease, cancer, and lungs infection make up long lines in queues at clinics, the minister chose to increase the taxes on much healthier alternative to smoking cigarette, which is vaping. It's our view as the IFP that this needs to be reviewed as imposing taxes to vaping would discourage the industry from growing. Government should instead be increasing policing and clapping down on illicit trade of cigarettes, which is killing companies that are operating legally within our borders. I'm certain, Honorable Chair, that fewer teenagers would get hooked on smoking if there were less cheap illegal cigarettes available. While welcoming the increase in revenue allocated allocation to local government, we are of the view that this money is not enough. We say this when we say this, we mean that councils who serve the people directly require the requisite revenue to do so. This call for an increase in funding is not so that it may be pocketed by officials and politicians, but it is meant for delivery of services and building capacity within the state. Furthermore, Honorable Chairperson, we must not govern inability to retain skills in local government. This fear of government, as we all know, has been around for 22 years now. How is it that this fear has been and still neglected? One does not see the 22 years of experience in this fear of government. Hence, our municipalities are falling apart. Lastly, Honorable Chair, our state-owned entities continues to fail us as a country. ESCOM has grown into a bottomless pit for state resources. 
and 88 billion rand to further bail out ESCOM is transversity. Denial is a shadow of its former self, and many other SOAs are crippling our economy. Honorable Chairperson, plain and simple, government must do better. Government must be better and must change course to focus on the needs of the majority of our people. The IFP supports uh, the report. Thank you so much. Honorable Vessels will be the next. Thank you, Honorable House Chairperson. House Chairperson, I don't think that any member in this House on either side of the aisle can disagree with the fact that South Africa is in trouble, that this ship is sinking, that we are in an unsustainable fiscal position, that we don't have enough money that 40% of South Africans are hungry currently, that 48% of South Africans are dependent on social grants, that we don't have enough money. Whilst we spend 60% of the budget on social services, there will not be enough teachers to provide the necessary education. There will not be enough doctors, there will not be enough clinics, there will not be enough social grants. Never. That is the unsustainable position that South Africa is in. Chairperson. Babu Babu Mute. You may not be aware that you did not mute and you are now in another conversation. Please mute. Proceed, Honorable Vessels. Thank you, House Chairperson. House Chair, whilst the ANC is blind to the reality, the fiscal framework will remain inadequate. Whilst there is no implementation of structural economic reforms, the fiscal framework will be inadequate. Chairperson, whilst members of the ANC regard big businesses as the enemy, we will not get out of this crisis. Whilst businesses are regarded as being the cows, the holy cows that will provide the taxes regardless of what is being done and services being provided, we will not get out of this situation. Chairperson, government should earn tax. Government can't just collect tax. Whilst government is only earning, uh, collecting tax and not providing services in exchange, we cannot expect businesses to have confidence in this government. Whilst members of the ANC think that it is wrong for businesses to build up reserves and save money, we have a problem. We have a problem in the thinking whilst the ANC does not understand the economy. Chairperson, history will repeat itself. We will remain in this situation. We will lose business confidence if there's no real structural reforms, if there's no actual addressing of the problems such as the energy crisis. Voltaire said, history does not repeat itself, but man always does. Stop with your failed policy directions. 
Stop giving Cubans money whilst the people of South Africa are suffering, whilst people of South Africa are unemployed, whilst you do not have enough money, you spend money on Cuba because of your historic loyalties, but because of the fact that you don't know what the reality is, whilst 40% of South Africans are hungry, you give money to Cuba. That's the problem with this government. You keep on doing the same thing. Businesses they provide services, they even fix potholes, which are the responsibility of this government because you fail to provide adequate services, businesses do it. Businesses provide social relief and provide and contribute to social relief programs whilst government fails to do it. That is what you should recognize, the role that big business can play in this country and start acknowledging that. Start acknowledging the reality and start and stop implementing failed policy. We need to get this ship going again. We all have the potential to get South Africa going. We have businesses that can create jobs and get us out of the situation. But then you must start playing your role. You must start Thank doing you, your Thank you, Honorable Vessels. Thank you. Honorable Chavalala, I'm giving you a warning. You do that again, you will be out of this platform. You don't I just touch so. the button and speak. Are you proceeding to speak? I'm saying I'm sorry, Chaperson. But the warning is given. Thank you for that. Uh, Honorable Swart. Leaves that the minister did relatively well under very difficult circumstances to strike a balance between growing the economy, ensuring fiscal sustainability, and supporting livelihoods. And the budget speech was broadly supported by markets. And it is clear that the minister is attempting to stick to the much needed fiscal consolidation path by allocating part of the 182 billion rand tax windfall to debt reduction, but also addressing much needed social support in extending the 350 rand social distress grant. Now the question of course is to what degree he'll be able to implement these proposals. And we from the ACDP believe as many Many do that what is much needed is much faster economic growth for job creation and revenue increases. Now, the committee report refers to various organizations that made presentations. PwC, interestingly enough, states that Treasury's tax revenue estimates for the next two years are too conservative, and that for this financial year that we are in, the revenue could be 40 billion rand higher than projected. And this the ACDP welcomes because we need to reduce the high levels of government debt, which has reached almost 4.3 trillion and debt service costs of 330 billion. But PwC, as many others, they premised their projections upon the first 10 months of last year. And those are the most recent tax figures that were available. However, the, as we know, the situation has changed dramatically globally with the Ukrainian uh, invasion by Russia. 
Now, we see that the fiscal risks, Honorable Minister, maybe you can touch on this, the fiscal risks identified in your budget speech as well as the budget review look like they are going to materialize. At the same time, consumers are facing shock increases in consumer inflation driven by rapidly escalating food and fuel costs, and this arising from disrupted inflation, uh, disrupted global supply chains. Electricity prices also set to rise, and the markets are, are pricing in the prospect of the Reserve Bank being forced to accelerate interest rate hikes. And this, of course, places further pressure on many South African households already struggling to make it from month to month. Now, it's against this background, Honorable Minister, that the ACDP welcomes the fact that not only was personal income tax and VAT rates not increased, but tax brackets and rebates will be adjusted to provide 5.2 billion rand in tax relief. But we would urge, Honorable Minister, that you announced in your budget view a review of the fuel price. Please expedite this. There is room to reduce the fuel price and the tax that is raised in regards in that regard. And this can be balanced with the commodity price windfall that is set to continue as a result of the European, Russian, and Ukrainian crisis. From that perspective, we'd ask you, Minister, to urgently look at that aspect. Our households need some relief, and that can be done by reducing the fuel price. I thank you. Thank you. Thank you, House Chair and South Africa's economic growth rate used to be around 4% during the mid-2000s. Now it is at around 1.9%. In fact, it has been forecast to be at about 1.8% over the medium term. The focus rate of growth is not enough to ensure that we're able to reduce unemployment, uh, reduce inequality, as well as poverty in South Africa. While plans in the past have been put in place to try and industrialize the South African economy, not enough has been attended to or done to address the challenges that are faced by those who are supposed to benefit from the program. We welcome the government's decision to use a portion of the revenue windfall to reduce the borrowing requirement as well as our debt. However, we do not support the government's decision to reduce the corporate income tax rate. We want to cite statistics to, in support of our argument. Between 2003 and 2012, the number of personal, personal income taxpayers grew by 7%. Since 2012, however, some of these gains have been eroded with a, a decline of 2% in the number of taxpayers according to SARS data. The decline is very worrying, as you might admit. It is a direct result of a weak economy and its failure to grow, which has reduced the, the ability of firms to grow and increase salaries. This moves in tandem with the increase in the high unemployment rate, or there's a direct correlation between this and the increase in the unemployment rate. Even worrying is that in 2020, there were only approximately 5.2 million individual taxpayers. These 5.2 individual taxpayers represent about 10% of the population, and they contribute anything between 40 and 60% of the tax revenue for the country. In other words, over the past few years, a smaller proportion of taxpayers has become responsible for an increasingly large proportion, proportion, proportion of total personal income tax rate. Uh, 
In other words, the challenge is that the burden for tax in order for us to increase revenue falls squarely on the shoulders of personal income taxpayers, while there is no uh, credible evidence or empirical evidence to show that reductions in corporate income tax rates in the past were able to get the private sector to invest in the economy, uh, to forget about their investment strike, create jobs, and do exactly what is expected of them. In other words, we keep on rewarding the, the, the private sector for its mediocrity and its failure to play its part. High income taxes, as you know, economic growth theory is very simple. High income, income taxes result in lower levels of consumption and savings. These in turn translate into a lower economic growth. I want to also make an example about the question about CIT. Instead of having a blanket reduction in the corporate income tax rate, we should follow the examples of what is done in some parts of the world, such as Germany, where if companies, for example, in, invest in rural economies, such as BMW, that is based in Bavaria, which is considered to be a rural province, they pay a lower income tax rate in order to incentivize them to Please go Please check to your monitor. I tried, I tried, Honorable Kwankwa. Uh, I don't have a name for the ATM. If it's an error, maybe you may speak. None. We call on good, the Honorable Heron. Thank you, House Chair. Uh, Chair, yesterday Stats SA released the GDP figures for 2021. Growth topped out at 4.9%, falling just below projections, but leaving us about 2% below where we were in 2020 before the pandemic struck. The July 2021 violence and insurrection robbed us of achieving over 5% growth, and those who instigated, instigated it need to be held accountable. We're yet to see consequences and prosecutions. The Select Committee's report laments that domestic savings, especially those that arise out of the reduction in the corporate income tax rate, are not being reinvested into the economy to create jobs. But it's important to remember that the environment conducive to private sector investment in our country, economy and jobs is a stable one where law and order is maintained and where there are consequences for the kind of destruction that we saw last year. The alarm bells in the GDP results are the sectors which have not recovered, especially those that are labor-intensive. The report before us is consistent about inclusive and job-creating uh, growth being our most pressing priority. But there's something going horribly wrong for the construction sector. The construction sector has seen a steady decline since 2016, and this is alarming for a number of reasons. The construction sector in decline means public housing is not being built, it means the private developer of residential or commercial buildings is not investing and infrastructure is not being built. A construction sector in decline means a labor-intensive sector is losing the jobs that we need, low-skilled, semi-skilled, and skilled. And a construction sector in decline is a force multiplier of decline. For every job in the construction site, seven jobs are lost in the supply chain. The public sector's commitment to infrastructure-led growth is critical to preventing the total collapse or exit of this sector. And before we find that our infrastructure and developments can only be built by foreign players. We agree with the standing committee that the projected economic growth of 1.8% over the medium term is not sufficient. And we encourage our government not to settle for this. 
we need at least 3% growth to have an economy that is creating enough jobs to start to see an impact on our unemployment numbers. Finally, we support the report's call on National Treasury to plan for and implement a basic income. This morning, I read an article on basic income. It made a number of points about the positive impacts of basic income, where it's been implemented or piloted in other parts of the world. And I leave you, House Chair, with this comment from the article. Humans are the only species on Earth who have to pay to live here. Basic income is the recognition that if we're going to make everyone pay to live, we should, least, we should provide everyone with the money to live. Thank you, House Chair. Thank you. The Honorable Sheikh Imam. Today, 28 years later, we still have a very unequal economy. The economy is still in the hands of a few. And when I say this, let me give you an example. One particular commodity, which is supposed to have created jobs in South Africa, is in the sugar industry. But what did we do? We made sugar imports from Iswatini, import duty-free. Who owns this company? Business leaders in South Africa. Okay, so they are making their profits through Eswatini. What is the impact on local production? It has dropped, which means we are losing more jobs. We are not creating jobs, we are losing jobs. We have such beautiful fertile land in South Africa to grow wheat, but we are importing them from Russia and Ukraine. Now the price will shoot up cost of living will increase. So are we actually creating jobs in South Africa to boost economic growth? No, we're not. Let's look at ESCOM. Level four from today, level six shortly, how are you going to expect businesses to thrive and succeed? So there can't be economic growth. Let's talk about the state of the municipalities alone. They can't even provide you with water. How are you going to get economic growth in the country? Now, we talk about poverty alleviation in this country, but our policies do not talk to reducing the levels of poverty in this country. Now, the debt service cost alone is going to be equivalent to 333 billion rand a year in the medium term, which is going to be 1 trillion rand. Most of that money is not used towards economic growth or infrastructure development. It is used for consumption. How are we going to boost economic growth in South Africa? If you look at the fuel cost rise now, which is expected to go to 40 rand, I'm told, per litre, what is it going to do with the cost of living? Even the 90 or 100 rand increase we gave for social relief is not going to help. So we need to put additional measures in place. We speak about manufacturing industry and local industry. Yes, indeed, that's where we can create our jobs. 
but yet we rely on imports on almost every other product. Have we created a conducive environment for manufacturers to thrive, to be successful? No, we have not. So it means we need to relook at our policies, particularly with our imports and things into the country. You have reduced your social grants over the medium term by two and a half percent. The National Freedom Party will support the report table here. Thank you very much. Thank you. Mishaviseki, Manako. Thank you, House Chairperson. Um, honorable ministers and deputy ministers, honorable members, as we debate budget 2022, it is important to always be conscious of the historical significance of the moment we are living in. Our economy is still emerging from the devastation of COVID-19 global pandemic. Today, we are faced with the prospect of unprecedented inflation owing to skyrocketing oil prices. Yesterday, we celebrated an International Women's Day. It is important that the history of this special day, especially in our days, when the history of the world has been rewritten by some countries, media, and some political parties in this house. The 8th March was the first celebrated when women gained suffrage after the 1917 Socialist Revolution in Soviet Russia, Russia and subsequently celebrated as a public holiday in communist countries. It was only decades later that it was adopted by a feminist movement in the West. While the economy and fiscal outlook of our country remains bleak, there is a glimmer of hope and evidence of much stronger and than expected revenue collection. The ANC supports government commitment to chart a course towards higher level of growth and fiscal sustainability. We also support government efforts to ensure that our country does not descend into debt prison as we know the perils of losing a sovereignty we have witnessed with many countries. We share government's concern about proportion of money that has been spent on supporting some of the large ailing SOEs. However, the ANC calls on government to develop a clear policy guideline on its decision to support SOEs, instead of leaving this to the discretion of the, of the Minister of Finance. There is a need to consistently a consistent application of the policy because the consequences of losing some of the critical SOEs, such as the South African Post Office, could be dire to millions of South Africa. The government did not increase taxes on individuals, and this should, should restore consumer confidence and support economic growth. Despite there being no substantial tax hike, there is still room uh, to improve the efficiency of collection. The lowering of corporate income tax to 27% has been welcomed by the business sector, with the substantial uh, subsidies and exemption afforded to various sectors in the economy. We believe that there should be enough incentives for long-term investment and growth. However, as the President said in the State of the Nation address last month, South Africa needs a national social uh, compact where each, each one of us each one of the social partners and government commits to building our country together. As we ask this House to accept this, to accept this fiscal framework and revenue proposal, we call on SARS to focus on collecting tax on non-compliant individuals and companies. We congratulate SARS for the recent successful search and seizure operation, particularly those targeting illicit economy. As the elected representative of the, of the people, 
We have a responsibility to ensure that the revenue collected through taxes is used to uplift our people and to transform our country from the ravages of apartheid and colonialism. We note that the recent improvement in revenue collection cannot be attributed to economic growth. We are reaping the rewards of the global commodity price. However, the downside of this is that the net energy importing country, the record-breaking oil and the gas price are likely to wipe away some of these uh, modest gains. Government must must therefore ensure that it drives the negotiation at NETLEC on the social compact to a successful conclusion. The social compact uh, must provide sufficient protection for the most vulnerable members of our society. The ANC welcomes the, the, the extension of the COVID social relief for the distress, distress grant. We want to ensure the civil society organization who came and made presentation to the Joint Committee of Parliament that the ANC has listened to your submission and we have heard you. The report of the Judicial Commission on the State Capture makes for sovereign reading. The numerous loopholes in our procurement system and that makes it possible for some corrupt state officials and their private sector partners must be closed immediately. In this regard, we call upon the Minister of Finance to expedite the introduction of the public procurement bill, which will be tabled before Parliament this year. Honorable members, we must work together to strengthen our oversight mechanism to ensure that we do not react after terrible, terrible things have occurred in government departments and entities. We must ensure that every rent and cent collected is used only for the purpose of which they are allocated. The oversight work of all committees must increasingly focus on, the, on identifying the inefficient in government programs and quality of expenditure. We must be unapologetic and speak out to the executive and accounting officers in, in various government departments that the quality of spend of public funds directed directly impact on the tax morality of South Africans. We can no longer accept the fact that a portion of our hardworking citizens are, co are consigned to second-grade infrastructure provision and poor government services. If government at the level of at, at all level is able to guarantee the, the, the delivery and maintenance of quality infrastructure and real, reliable public services, our citizens and business will be happy and pay a little bit more tax in order to raise quality life, quality of life for all South Africans. Compatriots who are in this together, I thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Mkhonishwa. Jafta. Molo Chifuipo. Thank you, Honorable Chair. In a post-budget interview, our leadership described the 2022 budget as both anti-poor and incompetently constructed to respond to the basic conditions of our people. The leadership highlighted the declining allocation to education, health, and social services, which are regrettably crowded out by our debt to GDP ratio. We also reflected in our meeting that our debt service costs, which saw an allocation of one trillion rand over the medium term expenditure framework is a recipe for social decay. This is made worse by the fact that these costs 
are expected to rise from 268.3 billion in 2021-22 to 301.8 billion in 2022-23, reaching 363.5 billion, which is 5% of our GDP in 2024-25. This means our resources do not reach the poorest of the poor, but are streamlined to pay our debts. This trajectory, if not managed, will inflame massive social unrest in the country. We are equally unmoved by government's failure to tap into corporate income tax. This neoliberal and market fundamentalist approach will not rescue our ailing economy with its challenges of unemployment, inequality, and poverty. The state has to perform its vanguard role to advance a people's revolution. Our people are entitled to basic services. They are entitled to access, to access quality health care services. They have a right to social welfare services. In this regard, the state cannot sleep on the job when there are pressing priorities worthy of its attention. Honorable Chair, our fiscal framework must project the lived experiences of our people. It must project an environment where policy certainly and invest, investor confidence are not in doubt. To achieve this, there must be a paradigm shift in terms of policy coherence, structural reforms, and ability to punish acts of corruption. After all we have highlighted, Honorable Chair, we will support the report. Thank you. Uh, thank you very much, members. Uh, I don't have a name for COPE. Do we have none? PAC? None. Aljama, Honorable Hendricks. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Honorable Auschie. Honorable Auschie, uh, 10 billion rand uh, funds under question uh, to be condoned is a request by the Water and Sanitation Department in its report this week, which was accepted. You must not willy-nilly just write off uh, these billions. It is so bad that there was also a call for ministers and deputy ministers since 2012 to be fired or face consequential uh, management for many more billions gone down the drain. Water must go down the drain, not billions of rands. And uh, the, part, the present minister agrees with us 110%. If Cuba did not now bring down a part, that honorable vessels would not have been part of this August and honorable house. And um, Cuba has done more for South Africa than honorable vessels constituency did when they governed. Honorable House Chair, uh, 
we are very concerned that zero-based budgeting has not been used in the fiscal framework in spite of the fact that the previous Minister of Finance gave such an undertaking and that there was support from the present Director General for this. So there is 30% of fat in all the line items in our budget. So we've heard that, uh, uh, that because of the war uh, in uh, Ukraine and, and Russia, uh, that this budget uh, may not be relevant. So Al-Jamaa would like to call for an earlier review of the budget because we know that this budget is built on parameters that we didn't take into account because of the war. We can't have a budget that is flawed and the chairman of the portfolio committee starts off by saying that uh, uh, please support this budget but this budget uh, has been affected dramatically uh, by the war. Lastly, honorable, uh, uh, honorable Speaker, rural villages have been ignored in the budget. It cannot be that 10,000 villages in South Africa still live in the Stone Age. We need to, to, to do something special about it. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thank you very much, Madam House Jesse. The ANC chief whip today is not my friend. I'm very, I don't know what I did to her. Oh, there we go. She loves me. It's, we're back to normal. Thank you very much. Honorable Sarben, <laughs> I will always protect you Thank from you. the chief I, whip. I appreciate very much your protection, Honorable House Chair. I want to start my speech today by doing what I thought the governing party's MPs would do, but fail to do so. And that is to thank every South African household and business for, despite the lockdowns and enduring the irrational regulations and some terrible economic policies from the government in general, doing their best to start their businesses or keep their businesses afloat, to get South African goods to new markets. And because of their efforts, let me repeat this, because of the efforts of the South African citizens and businesses and not the government, a revenue overrun, that's more taxes than the government anticipated, of 180 billion rand was possible. And we owe the South African people a great deal of gratitude for this, because this made the fiscal framework possible. But based on what we heard in the debate today, it's clear that some governing members, party members need a reminder that government has no money. It generates money from its citizens. It is the activities and work of the citizens that determine the success of the economy. And government can either facilitate that or hinder that. And what I heard from some of the ANC members today, condemning businesses in particular, shows that this government is determined to hinder the people of South Africa as they try to raise their living standards. But the other thing that hinders the economy is the massive amount of government debt, 4.3 trillion rands at the moment. That's nearly 70% of our GDP. And this deficit has ballooned to 386 billion rand in this financial year. That's the difference between what the government will get in and what it'll have to borrow, 386 billion rand. And interest costs are going up. We now spend more on interest than we do in education. Or put another way, we spend more on interest than we do on peace and security and public works combined. By this government's own assessment, the biggest risk to digging South Africa out of its economic hole, which has been dug by the ANC over the last decade, is from this administration itself. 
And the first risk is unfunded programs. And I was alarmed to learn that the eight ANC-run provinces in the last financial year has overspent by some 20 billion rand. So only the Western Cape has stayed within their budgets. And that shows what this big risk is, unfunded programs. The second risk is higher borrowing costs. And the Russian invasion of Ukraine, that some members of the ANC proudly support, guarantees there will be higher borrowing costs for emerging markets. And the third risk is, of course, the debt of state-owned enterprises. Now, it's also alarmed to discover in the last two weeks that South African Airways has already spent a half a billion rand more than budgeted may need a bailout. The post office has asked for 22 billion rand, and the taxpayer is doomed to carry the burden of these bailouts. So what we see in this fiscal framework is that the good intentions of some in the state, and even some in the governing party, isn't enough to get South Africa working again when you've got a compromised cabinet, and those who meanwhile cannot go into the cabinet meetings and say, no, you can't, to the colleagues who insist on bankrupting the country. So to quote the Chinese ambassador, let me repeat this, to quote the Chinese ambassador from 2019, South Africa needs more than lofty articulations of ambitions. It needs concrete bankable plans. It needs to protect investment and property rights, and it needs to put a lid on corruption. That was the Chinese ambassador who said this, not some neoliberal capitalists. So until the state can demonstrate a commitment to and implementation of concrete bankable plans, protection of investment, protection of property rights, and putting a lid of corruption, the DA cannot support the budget bill table before this House. I thank you. Thank you. The Honorable Morolong on the virtual platform. From the very outset, the ANC wishes to remind all in this debate that the February State of the Nation Address provides the strategic framework and direction in which we debate the fiscal framework and revenue proposals. The test for the ANC is whether the fiscal framework and revenue proposals speak to the poor and vulnerable advance ANC and government policy, bring about required reforms in the economy for growth, is redistributive, provides for a comprehensive social wage, and promotes inclusive growth. The fiscal framework and revenue proposals address the social wage, making it 59% of total non-interest spending. The impact of this is that it directly addresses poverty and unemployment and provides individuals with choices to engage in the economy. These are the poor and vulnerable, for whom the social wage is the difference between destitution and the ability to make choices about their lives. On advancing ANC and government policy, the structure of these proposals and the budget are designed to support economic recovery and development, a matter that has been seized with a matter that the ANC has been seized with since 2018. One of the key indicators of whether the proposals address policy mandate is to look at the budget against the medium-term strategic framework. One of the key output indicators of this MTSF is a correlation between the proposals 
that address the immediate needs of low-income households by providing short-term assistance and how the proposals finance the medium-term policy priorities of government. If we examine the evidence of budget 2022, it points out to the reality that it addresses medium-term fiscal policy focus through the allocation of the social wage, supports youth employment, employment supports the creation of short-term jobs, provides additional allocation in higher education for NSFAS, creates the ability for teacher retention in basic education, supports a health budget for hiring of new staff, continue to respond to COVID-19 in all its forms, all of which reflect that the budget speaks to medium-term fiscal policies. Proposal focus, proposals focus on fiscal sustainability, economic recovery, and reconstruction, spending on learning and culture, social development, and health continue to dominate budget 2022. How share these are the facts and evidence we provide to this debate, not slogans and rhetoric that take us nowhere. Given the appalling levels of unemployment and poverty, the special COVID social relief of distress grant is extended for 12 months until March 2023. The policy priorities of this budget are to be found in its attempt to achieve a level of sustained economic growth through infrastructure investment over the medium-term expenditure framework, accelerated implementation of the structural reforms and support for small businesses. In this regard, the additional 15 billion rent allocation to support SMMEs is a positive development. For the ANC, the budget response to the state of the nation address in its targeted allocations to economic development social development, health, peace, and security. Essentially for the ANC is whether the fiscal framework and revenue proposal support redistribution of wealth, the social wage, and inclusive growth. For this to happen, economic recovery and reconstruction has to be inclusive. The economic growth path must build on increasing the well-being and buying power of the poor, who are the majority and defined in terms of race, class, and gender. This will enhance the ability of millions of unemployed South Africans to effectively contribute to the economic future of the country. This is fundamental and should inform redistributive plans going forward. This in turn will stimulate the demand side of the economy and provide the critical economic growth that is needed. Budget 2022 assists in this regard by ensuring that the general fuel levy is not increased and a 5.2 billion rent tax relief for individuals and businesses has been provided for aimed at supporting economic recovery. Honorable members, our economic reconstruction and recovery plan, and in particular the sector master plans, has got to be well aligned to the composition of economic expenditure as the Fiscal and Finance Commission has pointed out. This is a function of parliament. And going forward, the ANC will push in parliament that we move towards an outcome and impact assessment model of oversight, qualitatively different to how we are currently conducting oversight. These will address the quality of expenditure, which in general terms is not good and result in, buff, in far better expenditure against policy intention. In particular, localization through industrialization and industrial policy support 
acts as a strategy for building capacity and capability in the manufacturing sector, as well as in the agricultural sector where food security is a crucial driver for job creation. As the committee noted, the expected real GDP growth of 1.8% over the medium term on average will, be, will not be sufficient to reduce poverty, inequality, and high rates of unemployment. This means that the infrastructure bill program Reindustrialization and localization must be the key pillar of our national reconstruction and inclusive economic recovery strategy, supported by the buy local campaign for the state private sector and consumers. Our concerns remain with the South African Reserve Bank tightening monetary policy, especially since you are moving into extremely uncertain times. At such a time, the losing of a monetary policy will far better serve the country's interest. Further, we remain unconvinced that a reduction in corporate tax necessarily leads to the investment of this saving into the economy. This is not born out of evidence. Rather, there are sufficient domestic savings that have been reinvested into the economy, that have not been reinvested into the economy to create jobs, and our discussions must continue to focus on these. In conclusion, the proposals are positive and take the country forward. We need to ensure that the finance commitments receive the dedicated oversight required in order to ensure that our people benefit from the budget and that their quality of lives are fundamentally changed. We vehemently support this report. To conclude the debate, we now invite the Honorable Minister of Finance, the Honorable Kotongona. Thank you. Thank you, Honorable Chair. Honorable members and cabinet colleagues, when we tabled the budget, we highlighted, among others, reduced global economic growth projections owing in part to elevated inflation, withdrawal of the ESA uh, fiscal support package, and the consequences of volatility in China's troubled real estate sector. On the domestic outlook, we projected real economic growth of 4.8% in 2021 and 2.1% in 2022. We said to expect the GDP growth to moderate at 1.7% in 2024. On the revenue side, we reflected on the better than expected revenue collection, mainly from elevated commodity prices. We indicated that although the revenue gains are expected to dissipate in the short term, some of the improved revenue collection is expected to continue over the medium-term period. Honourable members, since then, there has been significant global developments that will have an impact on our economy. Notable, the conflict between Russia and Ukraine. The conflict carries with it significant risk for a world economy that is yet to fully recover from the shock of the COVID-19 pandemic. In the longer 
than the longer the conflict lasts, as well as the imposition of further insurrections could lead to widespread global inflation, higher interest rates, and impede global economic recovery. On the positive side, we expect that the rally in export commodities prices stemming from supply concerns brought about by the conflict will provide added support for the local mining sector and possible windfall to revenue collection. However, the rising oil price, the potential weakening of the rand against US dollar and supply constraint around wheat and other agricultural products pose upside risk to food and headline inflation. Yesterday, Stats SA released GDP uh, numbers for the fourth quarter of 2021. Our economy grew by 1.2% uh, after shrinking by 1.7% in the third quarter of 2021. This is 2% lower than the Treasury estimations in, in, in the budget. Overall, South, South Africa's economy grew by 4.9% last year, compared to the COVID-19 driven contraction of 6.4% in 2020. This represents a slightly better growth than estimated by National Treasure, although from a lower base. There are improvements in a number of sectors, namely agriculture, manufacturing, service and transport. Of concerns are declines in mining production, construction, electricity, government and financial services. Honorable Chairperson, we must act with speed to accelerate, accelerate the pace of inclusive economic growth and job creation. I must make the point that in tabling budget, although we had a focus of 1.8, we made the point that 1.8% is not a satisfactory number from our side. We're presenting a number which we say, if anything remains the same, with the economy will grow at 1.8%. But however, structural reforms are intended to change that trajectory. That's why we're making a commitment to those structural reforms. We must uh, therefore shape all our macro and microeconomic policies and intervention. It's all true sustained economic growth that South Africa will be able to significantly reduce unemployment poverty, and inequality. As outlined in the Economic Reconstruction and Recovery Plan, and emphasized in the State of the Nation Address, as well as in the budget speech, we must act urgently to deepen social compacting and broaden consensus around the needs to be done to, be done to pull our economy out of its poor state. In this regard, work has begun to finalize a series of social compacts with various social partners. Efforts to grow our economy will not only depend on macroeconomic interventions. We must continue with our reform agenda, in the, particularly in the network industry of energy, telecommunications, rail, ports, water, sun and sanitation, as well as booting tourism, attracting rare skills in our economy. We are encouraged that the spectrum auction began yesterday 
and will be completed by the end of this month. This will support lowering the cost of data, improve broadband coverage, including in rural areas, increase broadband speed, and the rollout of 5G. Equally, we also need to get the basics right. This entails, this entails reducing regulatory constraints providing effective services, as well as coordinating and sequencing economic interventions. Our cities and provinces have an important role to play in creating an enabling environment for investment. In the city of Tuana, for example, Tuana, we are risking, we are at risk of losing a potential multi-billion rand as, as investment by Ford in an electric vehicle plant. Ford has already invested 16 billion rand in Swane Automotive Special Economic Zone, where it is producing its Ford range model. This is the largest foreign direct investment project our country has seen in recent times and has already created about around 8,000 jobs. Ford intends to invest further in bringing its electric vehicle production to South Africa worth about 10 billion other investment. This, however, has been put at risk because the city of China has been unable and perhaps unwilling to secure the electricity the new plant needs. The China example reminds us that a deficit of political will at municipal level makes it massively harder than it should uh, be to, to create conditions for job-rich growth. Honorable Chairperson, as part of addressing this public, public sector wage bill, the public sector labor summit is scheduled to take place at the end of this month. This summit is an important opportunity for all stakeholders to engage honestly and transparently and chart a path towards a more sustainable public service and remuneration guidelines. Much has been said uh, uh, and, and, and made about the 750 million US dollar loan that we took from the World Bank. Let me repeat what we said before. The World Bank loan has no conditionalities attached. It does not in any way threaten the sovereign of our country. We concede that all forms of concessional and non-concessional funding necessary to address the shortfall between our revenue and our expansion. We then chose an affordable option available to us. This is part of our, of our debt uh, reduction strategy. I invite the Honorable Shebambo to read a publication. It says, How China Lands, a rare look into 100 debt contracts with foreign governments. That is going to be an important point that China is itself does not, does not provide loans without any condition. Quite an important read for the Honorable Shibambo. I'm giving that as a homework uh, to him. In the State of the Nation Address, the President announced the extension of the social relief and distress grant to March 2023. The President further indicated that in this period, a detailed technical work and engagements will take place to identify the best option to replace the grant. In this regard, 
that in Treasury will work, uh, work is underway to review the grant system with a view to developing an optimal support mechanism for grant recipients. This review will also inform our approach to the debate and discourse about a comprehensive social security for South Africa. The key elements of which are A, social assistance, B, social insurance. In this regard, we want to make sure that all the social insurance debates are coordinated in one way or the other, whether it's national NHI, whether it's the review of UIFN, whether it's the review of the road accident, all of those road accidents, all of those constitute a social insurance. I'm mentioning but those uh, two, those. Uh, so three of these elements I'm saying of this social security, pro, uh, comprehensive social security, social assistance, social insurance, active labor market policies. These three components are part of what one called a, a, a comprehensive social security. I will now, okay, that concludes the debate, honorable members. I will now recognize the chief whip of the majority party. Thank you very much, House Chair. House Chair, I move that the report be adopted. Thank you very much. The motion is that the report be adopted. Are there any objections? House Chair, please. Please, could you note the objection of the Democratic Alliance? Democratic Alliance objection noted. Chairperson, please note the objection of the Freedom Front Plus. Noted. The objection of the EFF, Chairperson. Thank you, it's noted. Thank you very much, uh, honorable members. The, the motion has been agreed to. That concludes the business of the day, and the house is adjourned. Long live, let us be.